Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jess Dickey. Jess is back. Yay, Jess! Yeah, I made it. Do from we want to Oakland? Do we want to hear about Jess's survival of Oakland oh, first, Stephen or about six, Stephen's thing? You, we'll do my thing while you while you find the actual news article about your thing. Okay. Yeah, okay. So we're recording on Sunday, the first of December, and uh, Monday, the second, is the fifth episode of We Want More. Okay. That's coming out tomorrow. Yeah. Wait, fourth. So you had a yeah. thing to tell us about We Want More. Yeah. So. Um, Part of it, this was we did chapter eight, and that's the one where Harry does the two four six task with Hermione, mm-hmm. and he he didn't like. I thought he'd love that chapter and be like, "Oh, finally, here's a character that's not an asshole." <laughs> and like, I think he liked that part, but he was like, "Oh, this was so unrealistic. This would not have been that hard to solve." And I'm like, you know, we're gonna be deliberated on that for a while because I'm like, you know, it the idea of falsify like searching for a falsifiable or rather the idea of deliberately trying to falsify your hypothesis is not an intuitive one right there's a reason that this that even in you know real science this this practice is like less than 150 years old right um the or at least deliberate falsification maybe blinding is less than 150 doesn't matter like yeah like they didn't get good controls and double blinding and whatnot in the scientific method for a while yeah up until the early 1900s um the but anyway falsification like I think is less intuitive than it sounds like. And I'm like, maybe it's because you've been a software developer for 20 years and this is just like <laughs> built into your DNA at this point. But we, we went back and forth on it for a while and I was like, wait a minute, you have an 11 year old daughter. Here, okay. You do the two, four, six task on her. And if she says, I'm going to try to use either, if she uses some form of the word falsify or let me search for a way that this isn't true, I'll Venmo you $5. <laughs> uh, not if she solves it. If she can solve it without doing that, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll give him three bucks or something. But uh, my thing is, if she if she says something along the lines of falsify, then you get five bucks. Because I, I do not think that is an intuitive thing to an 11-year-old. And while Hermione is smart, the whole point is that she's brilliant, but she's untrained. Mm-hmm. And she learns very quickly, right? So she when she when she realizes the lesson i don't think she ever forgets it my intuition is that brian is not going to enjoy this series for at least the first 20 20 to 30 chapters because i mean the thing i love about harry is that he is kind of an asshole and he's finally standing up and doing all the things i would love to do but uh some people don't like that i'm hoping that in chapter 10 he realizes that he likes it like part of it was you know when he's teasing neville and he's like he gives this utilitarian rationalization about how uh, oh, it was for the greater good because he might be, you know, he might be less of a, of a wimp from now on. And he's like, does the author like really think we should believe that? Um, <laughs> and I I don't think it really matters what the author intends for us to believe. It's clear that he didn't, but it's... I mean, now that we like, have the whole story. Now, but, yeah, now, yeah. That, oh, yeah. now that we have it. But even then, uh, what I told him, I was like, I don't think it really matters what the author thinks. It's like, how did it make you feel? That's, that's what the intent, you know, just assume that however you feel is what you're supposed to feel or just ignore the author completely. Uh, yeah, well, the author even says none of, you know, what the character says represents my views <laughs> in the beginning of the story. Not everything the character says represents his views, yeah. I mentioned that because there was an, we made some funny audio the, before we started recording, and I have an outtake at the end of this one because I totally botched the intro, so mm-hmm. I thought that was funny. Cool. And Every now and then yeah. after these episodes are over, it's rare, but sometimes there'll be like something that I clipped out and I just add it at the very end. Yeah. yeah. Makes for um, good fun. I forget, were we doing... Were we doing uh, methods of rationality spoilers on this podcast? I'm okay talking about parts of it. If you're, I I don't know anyone who listens to this who hasn't read methods of rationality yet. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, just in case you haven't, this is a spoiler for the next I don't know minute or so. I feel like um, 
even if I hadn't liked Harry from Methods of Rationality, which I did, I didn't think he was an asshole, but when they reveal at the end that he is Voldemort, then it's like, this actually makes sense for the character the entire time for the character to have been an asshole. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it. the fact that he's as nice as he is is remarkable, right? Given that his infant brain was overwritten with that of, of the Dark Lord yeah. Voldemort. I just think it's still a good story whether or not you like Harry. Totally. And in fact, that's what Brian said. He had said that even if I don't like like the story, I won't regret having read it because it's clearly interesting. Okay. And, and that's nice to hear this early on, but like we don't even know what the plot is of the story right now, right? <laughs> we're at chapter eight. Like we don't know what the story is really going to be about. Yeah. Um, we're just we're still just getting things going. Yeah. On to Jess's Seafar experience. Yeah. Jess, oh. <laughs> you talk the you talk the fun stuff, then you talk the the interesting stuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> I went to uh, the CIFAR reunion 2019. I actually haven't attended a CIFAR class. Um, I was going with a partner who was an alumni. The really interesting thing that happened was uh, a couple of members of the rationality community decided to come protest the reunion for various reasons of theirs. What what sort of reasons? Yeah. Um, it's I honestly. Uh, I almost don't know if I want to say it on air, because first of all, I'm not sure if I entirely understand their reasons. And secondly, it's like kind of upsetting. <laughs> Do you think the reasons were legitimate? Potentially. I don't know. Um, I'm, again, I'm not sure how much of this is like... I, I found their, one of their like printed manifestos at the camp, but like I don't know how much of this is like oh. stuff that people are trying to keep off the internet. Or <laughs> Was that the printed manifesto you sent me? Yeah. Oh, okay. That I seemed feel, just like loony talk. I feel like if they're publishing it in a public forum, yeah. by like printing it and pasting it, they don't mind it getting out. But you don't have to talk about it on the air, but you do have to talk about it off the air because I'm really curious. Okay. <laughs> did you did you read the manifesto thing? Yeah, I thought it was just, I thought it was some troll. Yeah, I, I didn't no, think it was a troll. I thought is... it was a true believer who's a crazy person. This is someone being serious, and it does read very crazy, but I think that they might have some, like, valid points in there, or at least, like, if they're mistaken, but, like, honestly mistaken, they still, like, think they have valid points. Um, that was confusing. <laughs> I, I think a lot of... i confused just trying to talk about it. Well, I think a lot of conspiracy theories have some root in truth, some basis that is actually legit yeah. confusing or worrying to people, and then just gets spun up into all sorts of whackery yeah honestly yeah i think it's more of that kind of thing like uh one of the concerns i'll just say was that cfar is getting money from people on the premise of being a class on rationality but most of the money is actually going to pay for rent in the bay area and th this person thinks that this isn't a good use of the community's money and we should be directing it towards ai research or uh friendliness alignment stuff right but, I mean, okay, they're free to make that argument, but on the other hand, CFAR is providing a service and, say, charging this price, and what they do yeah. with the money after I pay it is their business. Yeah, I guess, like, that, yeah, that's another thing, too. Um, I do, I think these are good complaints. I don't think this was a good way to deliver them, and I'm not sure that the people who delivered the complaints this way, like, maybe, I don't know if they've been trying to make these complaints for a long time and no one's listened to them, and this, like, pushed them to this point of frustration where they had to, I didn't even explain what they did. So wearing Guy Fox masks and Sith robes, uh, four, <laughs> I forget masks. if it was four or five people, um, decided to barricade the camp. Like they blocked the entrances with their van and were protesting their various complaints, including the one that I just mentioned. They didn't realize that 
I think but most of the uh, CFAR attendees hadn't even gotten there yet. The adults. The camp was full of children and families from like whatever the previous event going on at the camp was. Oh my god. So they accidentally ended up barricading a bunch of children. <laughs> and the police responded with a SWAT team and helicopters. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this was made worse by someone claiming that they saw someone with a weapon. Oh. Of course. So yeah, the cops overreacted. Um, we just... I- I can see how parents, completely unrelated to the rationality community, with their kids in this camp, and these guys in Sith robes and masks show up. Yeah, I might, mean, like, might be like, please come help us. There's crazy people. Most of the people who weren't like, like, because some people came from outside of the Bay Area rationality community, where these people were known, and this wasn't really a surprising thing that they would do, considering some of their other extreme like views or responses to things. Like, I mean, they're, they're, frankly, more of just like these are dramatic people. Yeah. But if they were barricading a place, I mean, calling the police is a thing I would do in that case. Yeah, no, I I think that the response was correct, and the people just didn't realize, like, what this was going to look like to anyone outside of their bubble. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or they did, and they wanted to make everyone look crazy and stupid. Uh, I don't know. I don't don't want to attribute, like, too much. I don't know. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what was going through their heads. (laughs) I'm not sure if I want to speculate on it. Are any of them having charges pressed? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? I was going to pull up a news article so I could get the actual details right, but I actually do want to do that. Yeah, okay. So there were four people. Um, these were people that had previously been involved in some way in the rationalist community there. One of them has a blog that's like semi-well-known. That's I like know that this is not being hidden or anything, so it's the, the blog called Sincereously. All the article says that as of Tuesday morning, that was like last Tuesday... All, I believe, yeah, three of them. Okay, one, one, so there were four people. One of them got off without being arrested. Um, the other three were in custody at the Sonoma County Jail on a five, uh, $50,000 bail. The fourth one was released. So, okay, all four of them were arrested for felony child endangerment, felony false imprisonment, felony conspiracy, misdemeanor resisting arrest, and also for wearing a mask while committing a crime and trespassing, which is apparently a crime. Huh. <laughs> Okay. To be clear, this is the kind of conspiracy that we're not actually conspiratorial. No. <laughs> so. Our this conspiracy is, the... is much more secret than this. <laughs> yeah, we, we'd do a much better job. <laughs> we don't even have masks. I'm just like quoting from the news article. The group has steadfastly refused to talk about their intentions. They were yelling when we tried to interview them, and they weren't answering questions. They told us nothing helpful during the investigation that would help us get at their intentions. <laughs> I remember some other uh, report saying, like, they don't really seem to be speaking English. They're speaking some kind of strange jargon. (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, it's unintelligible, but actually, like, this is the same way that the author writes on their blog. And I think that this is just a lot of jargon that they've taken from the rationality community, coined themselves, which, uh, shrug, (laughs) I guess it is kind of their own language, and probably just using, like, big, unusual words and metaphors. So... Well, if the... it's just—it's a very like sad, kind of upsetting, and also sort of funny, entertaining thing to have happened. If the pamphlet you showed us is any indication, I'm sure they were completely unintelligible. Yeah, I have not met them. Uh, I I couldn't say. I've heard from people who have met them and talked to them that they are incredibly difficult people to talk to, um, because of just different brain kind of. What would I even say? Uh. The way you think about things is so different that, like, trying to communicate it to a normal person is difficult, trying to understand it. This is all just hinting 
more and more at like just unsound people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, I'm pretty sure most of these people are at least on the autism spectrum, but like, then again, so am I. And there's different levels of like intelligibility, I guess you can have. Well, and like, even if your goal is to take some sort of, some sort of action, like talking to the news about what you're trying to do sounds like a really valuable way to get your message out there. Yeah. Not pasting it on the walls of bathrooms or whatever, you know? I don't like, know if they uh, were aware that they were talking to the news. <laughs> it's possible that if they knew that they were going to be arrested and and interviewed, they might have actually like been more intelligible and prepared some kind of statement. Ah. I didn't even think of that. I guess they didn't either. Yeah, so anyway, the... Uh, the camp was blocked off for a bit. I was still driving over with my carpool, so we just pulled into a diner. <laughs> we got the text that uh, the police are here. We, you can't get into the camp. We're going to have to figure something out. Just, like, stay somewhere for now. <laughs> like, what happened? Did you get into camp eventually, or was yeah, it? Yeah, okay. uh, it was the next day, but everybody had to go to the CFAR, the house where they uh, do the classes. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very large house. Um, the has a basement and a bunch of rooms since they normally are hosting like I'm not sure how many students at a time but it like comfortably hosted a lot of people like maybe around I don't know if it was quite a hundred but yeah that's definitely a very high number but it's more than 30 okay. and uh it was really nice to see if I has I really actually am like pushed more towards wanting to take a CFAR class I mean I've been wanting to for a while but yeah, going and actually seeing like the premises, I was like, "Oh, this house is really sweet." <clears throat> it's like a three-week course. I think Six so. Week course. It's, it's it, yeah, it's a number of weeks. Shrug. Um, oh, now I feel bad that I don't know <laughs> these things. <laughs> well, it's all available on their website. Yeah, I don't know. We'll for me, it's always been cost prohibitive. Like the idea of taking three weeks off, spending three thousand dollars, and that's then, the reason I haven't done it. Yeah, like I would pay a hundred bucks to watch recordings of it on Udemy or something, which sounds valuable. But mm. I, I don't, I guess having interaction might be valuable on, you know, have, have additional value as opposed to just watching lectures. Oh, but, yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's a, it's a workshop too. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the human interaction is actually extremely valuable in these cases and a few thousand dollars might be, you know, underpaying even. But just yeah. because of the, the connections you make over that period of time with, uh, with other people all working on the same thing. But, you know, it's, it's the fact that you got to take three, either three or six weeks off of work and... That's that's a lot. Yeah. I, there's yeah. not that many people that can just be like, okay, see you guys later for yeah. this thing I want to do. Maybe Having, if it was like a medical... I don't know. I mean, like, I, I actually think it's probably worth it, like, for most people, unless you're actually, like, pretty impoverished. Um, I mean, I'm impoverished I'm thinking about the where... amount of, like, the, the amount of, I think, benefit that you could get from taking a course like this would definitely pay off that amount of money. Well, that like that sounds interesting. I wonder if they have any like. Here's what I earned a year before CFAR, and here's what I earned a year after. I do wonder about that. I'm not right. sure it's even an earnings thing because yeah, I mean this this is a thing and you no, hear it's about like it. a, making every aspect of your life better, like kind of thing. Yeah, this is a thing you hear about a lot from uh, people who go to the famous writers workshops, um, or because there's some that are like you know six weeks intensive courses that cost thousands of dollars. And, uh, and I just went to the, uh, I think it was five days, the thing that was sponsored by the Scientologists. And that was, I mean, the, I learned a few things, I guess, about writing there, but the, the, like the networking, the networking, the getting to know people and the bonds remaining, you know, for so long afterwards is where the real value came from. 
even just going the real to the values Cifar of reunion. friends made along the way. <laughs> Honestly, yes, <laughs> which is weird to say, but it's true more often than even the, the jokey nature yeah. of that sentence implies. No, I, I think that's intentionally the point of a lot of networking uh, type, or at least like places where the part of the benefit you get from it is like ostensibly the networking. Like I'm pretty sure that CFAR actually like the the staff and the community stays together and like continues to communicate after the class is done. They're a resource that you can continue to use. I mean, I feel like I could probably just get some of these people information or like get networks to them through you who was mm-hmm. networked th- to them through a partner that you have. And I could save $6,000 in five weeks. Yeah. So if you can't afford a CFAR thing or you don't want to do it, just make one of your friends do it. Right. <laughs> and then you can or make friends with somebody who already has. Parasitize off of their network. I mean, because I'm just thinking like to forsake five weeks, five or six weeks worth of wages and then pay roughly what that would pay for a class or for a, for a workshop. Uh, I don't know. That that I'm sure, like I said, it's great. I would love to pay for the discounted version where it's like, here, <laughs> here's the actual knowledge we're going to impart. As best we can in lecture yeah. form. I'm pretty sure that there... I mean, I know Duncan Sabian, who I think is no longer part of um, the CFAR staff, but previously was one of the teachers, has some lectures on YouTube. Um, I'd watch those. I think there's some less wrong articles that he and others wrote that summarize some of the CFAR canon. Uh, and yeah, if you wanted to... I don't know. Phoenix has gone to it. They still have all their notes and everything. So maybe for like the Denver area, less wrong, maybe we could have like a kind of a session about like, here's an overview of the things that Seafire talks about. You know, I'd really like to do more like workshoppy style things for our local community too. That would be cool, but we got a lot of very busy people. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we had people in the community trying that for a while before you moved out here. Oh, um, well. And they I did was... like once a month. Of course, now you're here and you might have the drive to actually keep it going, but. Maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool. I don't know. I'm also just have this like whatever you call patholo- like diagnosable laziness. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'd mean, go like to these things. The crazy. And, yeah. Anyway. Well, I think that struggling with acrasia and finding coping mechanisms for it is one of the things that CFAR is very good at. Like that's, or at least that's one of the main topics of uh, subjects that they try to teach people to overcome. <laughs> I mean, apparently, some people manage to overcome it enough to barricade a place. So yeah, <laughs> look, look what you could accomplish. <laughs> right? You too can be facing federal charges. So I honestly feel bad for these people. I, I don't think that they intended harm, but who knows? Then again, like I, I haven't talked to them. Maybe they did intend harm. <laughs> they certainly communicated intent of harm, right? By physically so. blocking people wearing masks and stealing your identities. I don't know. No, I, that, I honestly that, think that they intended to make a kind of statement that like was dramatizing their speech, and they didn't realize that this was going to be reacted to with fear or with like confusion or misunderstanding. Then they have they never seen a movie ever with people in black robes. Yeah, the and, people and, in black robes <laughs> are never the heroes. And, and I'm willing, I'm willing to grant that you know they could be neurologically atypical, but. That just sounds like not even trying. Like, <laughs> if, if I showed up at some, if I go anywhere with a hood and mask, people are going to assume, oh, they're here to threaten people. Yeah, yeah I don't know. That, that, do you think that'd be? Maybe I am giving them too much. Like, unless it's already like known beforehand, this is a party atmosphere or something. Oh, you know? Yeah, yeah. If you're going to a Halloween party, I mean, I mean, if I were to go to 
literally anywhere in public. Right. Certainly, if I were to block off an entrance to somewhere yeah. and stand there in a in a in a cloak and and mask. Yeah, like I I definitely like I don't think that they should have gotten away with having done this. I just hope that like they you know can someone can explain if they didn't genuinely understand why this was a bad way to put their message forth and. Yeah. Like, did you not see the popular movie Joker that came out this year? <laughs> I actually people still haven't around... seen it. Well, I mean, it just people running around <laughs> in masks, you know, freaking people out. It. I can't think of anything. Can anyone of where like the guys in masks? And... V for Vendetta. <laughs> I mean, V for Vendetta. Yeah, but they weren't. I. I guess I haven't seen that movie, but I. I'm I think they wanted to look it. cool, Steven. I think they were trying to look cool. You should see the movie. I. I will. Or it's just, it's on my short list forever. But yeah. yeah. But. Uh, were they perceived by the public as the good guys in V for Vendetta? <laughs> in V for Vendetta, they were the public. It was a mass uprising against the government, more or less. I mean, so was Joker. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they were portrayed in a good light in V for Vendetta. Well, depending so, yeah. on which side you took in Joker. <laughs> right, exactly. So we want to move on to our topic. Let's do that, because it is already after 4 p.m. Yeah. All right, but the audience can't let us forget, to, so remind us before, the, before we finish recording to talk about the next episode, which will be our live show. The audience has to remind us before we finish recording? Yeah, I'll leave that to them. <laughs> they, these, we got a pretty awesome audience if they can do that. <laughs> All right, let me open up my notes here. So uh, the thing that we are going to talk about for today's topic is White Shift by Eric Kaufman. And what is that? Uh, Eric Kaufman is a professor of politics in the University of London, and White Shift is a nonfiction book thing. I don't know what you call these things. Book. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a book about uh, demographic change and in the, happening in the U.S. and Europe right now and its political implications. And uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd heard about this book a few times before, so I don't remember exactly where I heard about it that made me pick it up. But I was, I've been for like... Everyone loves Scott Alexander, right? I love Scott Alexander a lot. And his book reviews are amazing. Mm. And I was like, dude, he is really giving to the community with reading these hard things and analyzing them and putting out these really concise good reviews. I honestly think that some of his reviews are better than the books that he's reviewing. Yeah. Or at least more, like, intelligible. Well, and he engages, like, contrary opinion, contrasting opinions and stuff, which many books fail to do. And so it gives there's there's more value in that. If you can summarize all the points of a book and some of the great counterpoints, then you've done more than just reading the book on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Yeah. And so I was like, I want to try to do the thing that he does. And apparently it is a really um, specialized skill, which I do not at all have. Oh. <laughs> you might so, have chosen a hard book. I don't know. Oh. Uh, I know. I think he at one point said that he wants to read it too. So we'll see. If he ever gets around to it, how... Oh, maybe that's where you heard about it. Yeah, how did, his... Did you write mind. a review for this as well? No, I did not. Okay. Because I, I mean, I look at his reviews, I'm like, I can't do anything even close to that with what I read. I'll I'll do the best I can on a podcast. Very well. <laughs> well, he won't do that, so at least you're still one-upping him here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'll have the audio version, and people can go read the superior written version if he ever does this thing. Yeah, sorry, Scott. I do more reading with my ears than I do with my eyes, so... And most people do. Yeah. I, I think most. it was a joke on one of the Doofcast episodes in the last couple of weeks where Matt was like, do you remember when you used to listen to music in the car? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I know I must have at some point, but I haven't for for so many years. Yeah. And I'm like, me too, man. <laughs> I had to disconnect my battery over Thanksgiving holiday to recharge it and do some stuff. And my dad's like, you're going to lose your radio presets or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> that's fine, dad. I haven't listened to the radio in five years since I got this car. <laughs> You're <Nice>. fine. <laughs> yeah. What is a radio, Dad? <laughs> is that the thing I plug my phone into so I can hear podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
Um, yes, this is the this is the book that I chose because I thought it sounded very interesting and I'd heard about it. And reading, I generally read fiction, uh, which is another thing that makes me feel guilty because all these other smart people are reading nonfiction and learning stuff. Um, and you I can like learn stuff from uh, fiction. The what? You can learn stuff from fiction. <laughs> you can, but you can't like hear arguments about demographic shift in the U.S. and Europe and how it's affecting the political climate, right? Well, so I, I started reading this. Story for him. I was I was really surprised by how much of the reading in these books is not really necessary. Where there's just like pages of graphs uh, and statistics and stuff, and I'm like. I really wish I was Scott Alexander and I could do an in-depth dive on these and like look up the sources and everything, but I'm not. So I'm just going to skip the next couple pages until he makes his next point. Um, well, I think part of it, and we touched on this before we started recording, that like reading a nonfiction 400 or 500 page book, if it's making a case, mm-hmm. I find I've only read, I don't know, a handful of books like that, but they usually make their case in the first 20 pages. Mm-hmm. And you're either on board or you're not. Like I, the the most salient example for me would be like Peter Singer's "All Animals Are Equal." Okay. Oh wait, that might have been the name of the um, the yes, essay. The book was um, "Animal Liberation," okay. and uh, he he makes the core argument in the first fifteen pages, which is essentially a cut and paste of his essay "All Animals Are Equal." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Yeah, man, I'm sold." And then the <laughs> next three hundred and fifty pages is him defending that thesis, but you know, like proving that they really do suffer in factory mm-hmm. farms, the evidence about how bad they're treated in, in labs and stuff in the seven or up through the seventies. And, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, I, I didn't need any of that. I don't know if I even finished that book because uh-huh. I, I already believed the case he made from, from the, from the argument. I didn't need, need all the data, but if you want that stuff, like the first chapter or chapters, the first section and the last section are the two that are the contain almost all the information, but I'm really glad I read a, everything in between too. Cause there was, there was a lot of examples given. There was a lot of further explication, which just was really interesting to read. Yeah. So. All right. So what is this book about? Okay. White Shift. Um, White Shift is about this guy sitting down and being like, what is driving the right-wing populism that we see today uh, swinging up in Europe? There, A lot of the right-wing populist parties have been winning in Eastern European countries. Uh, UK, you know, voted for Brexit. Uh, we here in America elected Donald Trump. And he's like, what's what's going on? What's doing this exactly? And one of the immediate narratives that was given right after uh, Brexit and Trump election was that it was the people who were being left behind economically in the rural areas that were kind of like lashing out with this vote. Like, you know, we're being screwed. Somebody pay attention to us. Make this right. Right. Mm-hmm. And he his. His argument in White Shift is that that's actually there's two the book almost has two different topics, but the the first half is his argument that this is not the case at all. Uh, it doesn't have that much to do with economics. It is, in the words, well, to paraphrase the words of Ray Wood Jr., it's for the culture. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay. Uh, go ahead. Oh no, just uh, go on. <laughs> oh, okay, I thought you were about to say something. Um, so uh, what he's saying is that. The the elites generally are pushing for multiculturalism and immigration in the Western democracies. And, I mean, I don't think that's really a big surprise to any of us because we follow a lot of economists and that is a thing they say a lot. That immigration is good for everyone. It's good for the immigrants. It's good for the country they're immigrating to. It's a net positive for the whole human race. And, um, and Like long term anyway. Well, long-term and short-term. 
it, the people are much more productive to the countries they're immigrating to than the ones they immigrate from. And in general, they are uh, people who are highly driven and and mm. people that want to do things with their lives and then, you know, have the courage to uproot and go someplace else. Is this, uh, you're saying that like long and short term economically, uh, immigration benefits an area? Yes. Huh. I was under the impression that short term it was a uh, disruptive I, well, disruptive, yes. Um, I, disruptive in a good way, I think, is what most people would say, that it yeah. frees up people who um, were doing the less skilled jobs, which most immigrants take, to do other things instead. Yeah. But, like uh, there's a shift. Yes. Um, and but it's definitely disruptive, yeah. This sounds like a good point to interject, that um, Brian Kaplan and Zachary Wienersmith collaborated on a book called... Uh, I, I think it's called Open Borders. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was just about to mention that too. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I did listen to the interview with Brian Kaplan on the book on Julia Galef's podcast, Rationally Speaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I trust Zachary Wienersmith. Uh, I remember I read I read his <laughs> his long like. Of course, it's in comic form, and so is the book because mm-hmm. um, he illustrated it. He does Saturday morning breakfast cereal, and which uh, is an amazing comic. It is, and it sounds like it'll be a fun read. I'm going to read this at some point. Um, what was it called? Open Borders. Open Borders. Okay. Yeah, I still struggled to say that properly. Open <laughs> borders. There we go. I enunciated. All right. So that book exists too. Go ahead, Inyash. <laughs> yes. And I've heard it's a good book. And I actually really wanted to read it to get a counterpoint to this book, but I ran out of time. Um, anyways, so yeah. Oh, wait. I mean, hang on. So this book is arguing that this is bad? No. It's arguing that um, some people uh, feel like their culture is threatened and this is creating a lot of anxiety. And that's like the broad overview, and I'm going to get okay. more into the details. Okay. So, but like, just to clarify, the author is he, like he does not he does he accepts the common economic wisdom that immigration is good uh, for economies. Okay. Okay. Go but on. Good for economies might not mean immediate good for society. Uh, I mean, it, or for even sure. yeah, certain parts. Well, can, like yeah. like I think if I'm following this so far, it can be great for the economy for for um, freeing up jobs and and giving people a better life, etc. But it can also encourage people to be like, I'm threatened. Give me my, my Trump. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. More or less. But the threatening isn't due to economic reasons. No. Yeah. But yeah. it's, yeah, no, like I, maybe I should just let you explain. But like, I, it sounds like what he's trying to say is that like, yes, actually this culture is in danger of disappearing. But, and, but that's not like a valid reason to ignore the economic benefits that you could get. That is, yes, that is a thing he gets to. Okay. Yeah, later on. Yeah, I'll let you keep summarizing that. <laughs> okay, so yeah, he says that uh, good for immigration and um, the state also likes to have as many people fit the citizen model as possible um, because, you know, mm-hmm. then you can integrate more people into your society. You have more power with more people. You can um, you can mobilize far more people if you need to. Generally, the state likes to have their definition of a citizen as thin and bland as possible so anyone can fit into it. They, you don't have to. You, you you don't have to be only you know this very specific genotype to be a member of the United States. Can you uh, explain more about what the author is saying? Is the citizen model though? Uh, the citizen model is that uh, you are treated as a citizen under the law as long as you meet a few basic requirements, and that it doesn't have any cultural implications. Okay. Does it have others? I mean, aside from like the law of what makes you a citizen, though. Uh, no not not in terms of national law no okay yeah, so national law is being distinct from people's perceptions exactly okay yeah yeah and uh and what what he 
the case he's making is that a lot of people feel that their way of life, their culture, whoops, sorry, uh, that their culture is being threatened, um, that they're being overrun by strangers, that what they are used to is changing and not recognizable to them anymore, and that they don't like that at all. Um, I There's a quote near the beginning that says, Western populations are aging in 30 to 45 percent, um, or sorry, 30 to 45 percent of the population of many countries will be over 60 years old in 2050, which I think also includes all of us, right? Yeah. Hmm. Um, Wait, 2050? What year is it now? 2020. 2020. How old am I? Fuck, I hope he's 60. All right. There <laughs> yeah. we go. All right. Yeah. Um, and that the difference between the, a, a, the nation's current ethnic composition and the ethnic composition when the median voter was 20 years old is widening uh, much, much quicker now than it used to in the past. And also that old people vote a lot more than younger people, just mm. empirically speaking. So uh, their nostalgia is an ingredient to this rise in right-wing populism. I'm really curious as an aside, what the voting demographics will look like in 2020. Yeah. I'm anticipating, in fact, I should put money on this in the Discord, yeah. that we will see a substantial uptick of people under the age of 25 voting. Yeah. All right, I'll remind me to do that. I will I will try to remind you. Or I can bet one of you guys right now, if, you, if, you, if either of you disagree. I don't know if I disagree or not. I'm curious why you think that. You also have to define substantial. Ethic. I do. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't need to see what the, what the rate was in 2016. I think it'll go up because people were surprised i think my perception is that young people were surprisingly outraged by how 2020 2016 mm -hmm. turned out mm -hmm. so i i think people will be voting more in 2020 hmm. I'm, that's my prediction yeah but i will find I hard numbers I... i'll find numbers hard enough to put money on by soon okay i don't think i really disagree with that so <laughs> i could like pretend to take the other side to take you up on the bet for the sake of betting but i don't know if that's <laughs> in the spirit of putting money on your beliefs. Well, I'd be happy to take your money. I could help you put you, money on your if, beliefs. If you expect to lose money, I'd be happy to take your bet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Inyash, go ahead. No, it's okay. No, wait, I win either way. <laughs> All right, go on. Uh, he had some interesting historical um, historical notes, too, on this, which uh, basically came out to say that this is not the first time this has happened by any long by a long shot. Uh, that society or at least u.s society and i think british as well but he's focused specifically on the u.s society um has had um these fears uh, come in waves for a long time because we've been traditionally a country of very high immigration compared to the rest of the world and uh restriction on immigrations have been put in a lot um most the one i remember the most um is the chinese what was it called Oh, he he named it in the book. It was it was the Chinese Restriction Act or something mm -hmm. that when all the uh, poor Chinese workers were coming over into San Francisco to build our railroads and stuff, uh, people started freaking out, and so the government passed laws restricting Chinese immigration. Um, but he, the historical note was the Know Nothing Party was a nativist party in the mid 1800s. It was the most successful third party in U.S. history. In Michigan, which was a high immigration state in the mid 1800s, 367 out of 377 representatives were know-nothings, so all of them but one. A know-nothing president was considered inevitable in 1854, but then the Civil War happened. So who were the know-nothings? The know-nothings were basically people who were nativists. They were like, we don't want immigrants, we want to lock down our borders and to have this country for, our, you know, the people who live here already. <laughs> Where were they called know-nothings? I don't know. I, I don't know exactly why they were called that. Huh. If, I'm sure if I knew more history, I would know, but I am an uneducated rube. Well, 
Maybe we could just look it up real quick. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, the Native American Party, which was renamed the American Party in 1855, commonly known as the Know Nothing Movement, which with a K, was an American nativist political party that operated nationally in the mid-1850s. It was primarily anti-Catholic, xenophobic, and hostile to immigration, starting originally as a secret society. The movement briefly emerged as a major political party in the form of the American Party. Adherents to the movements were to reply, I know nothing, when asked about specifics by outsiders. Ah. Uh, <laughs> therefore, the know-nothings. Man, it almost sounds like the teabaggers. The what now? The, what was it? The teabaggers or the, the tea party? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know the more popular. I was like, the people the playing Halo? <laughs> <laughs> yes, them. Wait, remember when that happened? I, I do now, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the teabagger party from Halo. <laughs> I have my vote. Teabaggers 2020. Not tea party, teabaggers. <laughs> Didn't we, a bunch of people vote for like joke candidates in the last... I think the numbers were inflated. I yeah. remember reading right after the election that a bunch of people, like tens of thousands, have wrote in, wrote in Harambe the gorilla. Right. <laughs> but I think the number was radically less than that a few okay. weeks later I read. But um, I hope so. Okay. Um, so the there was another wave of nativism in the 1920s, and restrictions were put into place uh, with demand then. And the percent of for- foreign-born in the U.S. dropped from over 13% in 1920 to less than 5% in 1965 due to those restrictions. Uh, so this has happened before it'll happen again, but the thing is that people get freaked out when the world around them changes and it's, it's, he goes out of his way to say that this is not necessarily a bad thing, that it's not a racist thing to want to see your culture be preserved. Uh, that a lot of us are transplants. We move around a lot. We don't have a lot of ties to the past. And so, for us, it's like, you know, whatever, what's the big deal? Uh, but there are people who feel that their culture is lost. And it's not like we don't have cultural preservation programs in practice. There's a lot of people who are very proud of their traditional heritage. And they, you know, they will make their traditional food and have their their weddings in the traditional way of their home country or whatever. And lots of times, you know, we applaud that. Yeah, it's actually just thinking about how I feel like the left uh, is really in favor of the preservation of or the respect of foreign cultures, but kind of derisive of people that claim to have any kind of white culture, like particularly white American culture. Maybe it's because I don't go outside much. Although I have noticed with people who visit me from out of town that aren't necessarily racist, they're just surprised by the number of international restaurants I live next to and like, mm. you know... Uh, Middle Eastern people at gas, you know, running gas stations or something. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, really? with with thick accents or something. They're like, "How do you?" Someone asked but me, "Denver like, is so white compared to anywhere else I've been to." <laughs> I think you should visit Fort Collins. Um, oh yeah, it's. I mean, it. it I, I don't think Fort Collins has a problem with non-white people. Um, it's just it. I think happens to be super white. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's less of a city, right? Like a destination for people. It's a suburb, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it has a. It has a state university in it, but mm. um, it's There's less incentive to move there. Yeah, it'd be, like it'd be a great place there. to retire to. I mean, it's got a population of around a hundred hundred thousand. It's mm. not like a little hamlet, but um, anyway, like do a lot of um, immigrants move to retire? Oh, I meant for like, I I couldn't imagine myself moving to Fort Collins. <laughs> um, yeah, not because of the lack of racial diversity, just because there's I don't know I. 
I don't know why I wouldn't like it. I don't, it's not like I take advantage of living in Denver, but in any case. I mean, you have a job here in Denver. Yeah, that's a really important part of it. Yeah. Um, He's talking about when he retires. Huh? But you were talking about when you retire. Yeah. So that wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, I don't know. But I, if you I, didn't have a job here, like, would you want to stay here? I think so. I don't know. I got friends here. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if I were old, I didn't have to work, but I'd I'd still rather live in the city just for like the cultural benefits. So then again, I'm not old and I don't have like any movement issues. Yeah. I don't mean this as like a, as a culture war thing, but what is white culture that people are worried about losing? Like Um, if it's, if it, is it just living near white restaurants? White Southern culture, maybe. I mean, white Southern culture is what people most think of, but every place has culture. And I'm sure they do. And I think I just, someone, yeah. it's, it's one of those things I just don't see. For it's not one of those things it. you really notice when you go to a foreign country because there's like things that are subtly different where it really smacks you in the face. How I, I notice different white cultures for sure. I mean, like uh, if I go to Pennsylvania, there's the kind of uh, Pennsylvania Dutch like flavor of white culture. In Jersey, where I was, it was more like Italian American, the area I was in. So there's some of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can think of a couple things. Like in uh, in rural Iowa, it it was the, it's it's this nice neighborly feel with everybody there because it's a small population and everybody knows each other. So mm-hmm. like a truck drives by and you wave, mm-hmm. and it's just like <laughs> seriously, and they'll, they'll wave at you, Aww. and it's just like hey neighbor. Um, That's cute. Yeah, I and mean, like I guess I don't really care about that, so I wouldn't care if people stopped waving. Mm-hmm. But I've heard um, people visiting from. Oh, I, I could see how if you lived in that kind of culture and then people just st- gradually stopped waving, it would be sad. Yeah. And different cities just have different attitudes toward life, it feels like. And towards like interacting with strangers. Like I think some some places... Like mm. Seattle has a kind of distinctive Seattle flavor to it. I was so glad to come back to Denver after being in Berkeley because people are so <laughs> fucking nice here. <laughs> it's really? like, I just keep being reminded of how lucky I am to be here. Anytime I leave, I'm like, oh, like... I want to go home where people like smile at you when you walk in a door (laughs) or like where if you put your turn signal on, someone will let you into traffic Mm -hmm. or where somebody won't punch your window and it's still all your belongings. That happened to Nuckland too. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been, I've been keyed in Denver, but I've never been robbed. Um, (laughs) That's, that's some dick move. I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying there's no crime here. It's just like the, the statistically it's much lower. I, I don't feel and, like, the way that the place looks doesn't make me feel unsafe. When I walk around, everything looks like it's in good order. Yeah. Even areas where there's, like, weeds and stuff don't have a feeling of threateningness. I don't know how to describe that, really. Like, even the graffiti in Berkeley. I noticed when I came back to Denver, I was in, like, a women's bathroom that was just covered in graffiti. And one of them was, like, Marvel Infinity Wars coming out next month. <laughs> and, like, I like bears with a picture of a bear. And, like, just, like, you know, really cute, happy. Like, when I was in Berkeley, the graffiti was all, like really hopeless and angry and like full of swear words and penises mm. and like to come back to denver and it's just like goofy silly but it was like i love you you're great like have a great day on the wall. <laughs> so is inspiring bathroom graffiti part of white culture <laughs> no i think that's it may maybe be more <laughs> like <laughs> it's part of mile high culture all right so i guess maybe the book gets into some examples of like what would we lose if say denver became 70 percent non-white right well i I mean you'd also gain a lot of things it's not the matter of losing or gaining it's the matter of people being uncomfortable and anxious and feeling like their world is not the same one they can recognize and interact with yeah but it isn't a lot of culture based on values like yes because i could see i will i will even say i think a lot of cultures are 
worse or better than others. I was just about to say that too, where it's like, but I could see how if I were a 70 year old woman who'd been raised with this one culture that upheld traditional values, quote unquote, I would feel really like upset if a more liberal culture came in that didn't think my values were important. You know, like on Sundays you go to church, businesses close and you stay home and you like read and you do nice family things. And suddenly nobody cares about that anymore. Right. In Europe, they have a, a, I don't know if this is still the case now. I haven't, you know, lived there in ever almost, but when my parents lived there anyway, they said there was a, a almost cultural tradition of like after dinner, people would just go out and walk around. And it was, I don't know, believed to aid with digestion or whatever. But like you oh, that sounds walked, nice too. Yeah, you got some exercise. You talked with people that you live with. You saw your neighbors and stuff. I don't know. I it, love hearing about cultures that have like, like I love the idea of a siesta where it's like you should have a midday nap. I'm like that that would actually probably improve a lot of mental oh and physical God. health throughout the world. Because yeah. physiologically, I believe our circadian rhythm does want us to nap in the middle of the day. And I think. I think honor cultures are terrible and toxic and we should get rid of all of them. But like Tamler from um, um, Very Bad Wizards. Wizards. Yeah, he's, it sounds like he comes from an honor culture because he like, he's very proud of it and defends it. And he even wrote that book. um, What was it called? I can't remember. His book came out last year. Yeah, if you Google Tamler Summers uh, honor culture, you'll find the book. Yeah. What culture does he come from? I don't know. Uh, I couldn't tell you. I, I, I know that he... He defends this this honor culture thing in a in a book about. Um, he talks about oh, you know what? The benefits of it. I wonder if that's like similar to the thing Jordan Peterson was defending. Is that like where I, I think I'm thinking of something different? Can you describe honor culture? Uh, where your personal reputation and honor is very important. Oh, so yeah, it kind of was like Jordan Peterson was talking about how. Uh, what was I forget what he was even arguing like against with this? I guess maybe it was similar to preserving a culture, but. He was talking about how there's this like what he would what he would not call toxic masculine culture, but among men, you know, I used to I used to hang out with a lot of guys that were in like the military and like did masculine man manly jobs when I was a kid, and they all would like make fun of each other and like but like really they were testing you out, you know, like they were saying if you can't be made fun of and like take a friendly punch every now and then, then like there's something wrong with your life. We're just, we're trying to help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like kind of thinking about how like, I could see how like somebody might have this opinion of this kind of culture. But like, to me, that sounds exhausting. Like walking around, having your friends make fun of you, having to always like, you know, put up a friendly fight yeah. is the kind of culture that like drives me nuts. Yeah. I've seen this with, it, it is mostly men, I think, where I've like seen this kind of culture where it's like, yeah, we're, we're like best friends and we all have to like, everything's a joke all the time. We always have to make fun of each other and, and like, oh, that that would be so exhausting to have to just like do that with your friends all the time. <laughs> On the plus side, most cultures are opt in. You don't mm. have to join that group of. Friends. I don't. Well, it, it, they are in the U.S. Maybe, but like in other cultures. I mean, if you live in an area that has an honor culture, yeah, you're going to be indoctrinated in it anyway. I think that is what a lot of like th- that was what I thought toxic masculinity meant originally. Like t- toxic culture that is toxic specifically to the men in it, not yeah. to like the people around them. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if I was mistaken about its meaning or if it changed meanings every time. I think that's what it does mean, right? The type of masculinity that hurts men. I've heard it used as like masculinity is bad and here's how it hurts others. Oh, well, that's just standard talking points. (laughs) That's not not toxic masculinity specifically because that was supposed to be more like, look, guys, you're hurting yourselves when doing this and this is why. Yeah, no, that, that was what I thought it meant, but I've heard it more recently be used as... 
the, the other thing. Right. Well, it's probably been inflated and yeah. inflated and all those things that happen with words during a culture war. But anyways, I think I'm going to like go down these notes that I wrote and yeah, uh, you guys can like ask questions or whatever as I go through them. I was just about to suggest because we've gotten we pretty got far away from your book. Well, and I, it's been fun, but I, I know yes. that you, you wrote a lot because you're excited about it and I want to keep, yeah. keep running with it. So. I actually think this is generating good conversation too. I just, yeah, I do want yeah. you to get through your notes though. And it is like an almost 500 page book. So there's a bunch. <laughs> it's more than 500 if you include the appendix with all the like notes and sightings and everything, but I don't. <laughs> I only count the words I had to read. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, the, the there has been waves of restrictionism before. In general, elites like immigration, though, because it's good for business and uh, making a strong nation. So left modernism nowadays has created a new moral order, and he calls a moral order as the definition of what is sacred and divine, which pushed speaking of immigration restriction beyond the pale, keeping it entirely off political agendas, uh, doing this by equating immigration restriction with racism. And uh, since the establishment uses and the anti-racist taboo, which is very strong in our society, to defend, or at least was until a few years ago, uh, to defend an immigration policy uh, that hasn't been sold to the people, uh, this creates a lot of problems. Because the people, this is an immigration policy, of, you know, of basically very open openness in, of our borders, and usually people have opinions about this sort of thing and vote on it. But the establishment said, uh, if, if you're against this, then you're racist. And so it was kind of pushed forward without being debated on the merits that people are actually worried about. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So is it just not socially acceptable to say that I want my culture to be preserved? Yes. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that is, that's what you said just, just like 10 minutes ago. Yeah. You said that people think, you know, there's no white culture that needs preserving, right? Yeah, that's funny that they like then are like, did they consciously all decide that we're going to say that it's about economic concerns? I, it must have been like everybody subconsciously like <laughs> doing yeah. this double think thing. I mean, the the racist Ted Boo obviously came first and then was just a handy way that one could put in those hmm. open borders. But I, I don't, maybe a few people were conscious about it, but I don't think it's a conscious thing. It's just like, here is a handy rock nearby, and the dog is attacking me. I will grab the rock and smash the dog, and uh, yeah. without planning it beforehand. Where in this case, the rock is immigration, or the dog is immigration restriction, and the rock is anti-racist taboos. And just a fun example of a lot of people acting on a cognitive bias. Yeah. Well, like it's one of the major talking points of white nationalists that they're threatening our culture. Yeah. You know, when we yeah. when we when we cease to be the majority, then we all of our stuff will disappear or something, right? Right. It is now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said, due to this, uh, that until the very recent past, uh, due to this, many immigration restrictionists would couch their concerns as economic concerns or security concerns. Uh, they were saying things like, you know, it will make the economy worse. It'll put these people out of jobs. It lowers the minimum wage. Or we're worried that these criminals are bringing over drugs. They're sending us their rapists. But, like, uh, but since that's all demonstrably not true. Right. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the thing. No one's it, taking them seriously. But do they know it's not? It's demonstrably not true? Like, that's the thing that I'm... I, I think when you have... When you want to restrict immigration, you have a motivated cognition that, like, they're... In some cases, this does disrupt in a local economy, and sometimes immigrants are fleeing from the law. They're really more fugitives than immigrants at that point. But um, 
And then you latch onto those, and that is what you say, since that is what it is socially acceptable to say. Hmm. Which he points out is really interesting, because it means things that are false and racist are being used as excuses to avoid the, you know, anti-racist taboo. Because it is kind of racist to say that immigrants are all criminals and rapists, right? (laughs) A little bit. bit. (laughs) But you can't say, I want to restrict uh, immigration to people who look like me and have my culture. Because that is just straight out flat racist. Just to qualify, my little bit was said with a winking smile. Because, yeah, if that didn't come through on the audio, uh, clearly is what I should say for for (laughs) a good soundbite. And he gave the example of an old lady uh, in England. She said she was on a train and I might have been the only English person on that train. I didn't like it. I could have been in a foreign country. And when she was challenged by a liberal uh, near her that why should this affect you if there's minorities on the train? Uh, She right away shifted to an economic excuse. Said it doesn't affect me. It, um, I got grandchildren. I don't think things are going to get better or easier for them to get work. Hmm. Because she couldn't just say it was weird to be on a train full of people that didn't look like me like I was in some other country. I mean, so the charitable view of that would be especially if everyone around you is speaking a different language um not knowing what somebody's saying is sort of disarming mm-hmm. right and while it's unlikely they're talking loudly amongst each other about how to rob this old lady you would have no way if they're you would have no way of knowing if that's what they're talking about yeah um depending on where you are that could be an unsettling thing if everyone around you is speaking a different language yeah. um i'm not obviously defending the whole thing but i'm just trying to think of it yeah you know, but that's the thing she, she wasn't allowed to say like yeah that's right. why she switched to the oh but like My they're, they're gonna take all the jobs yeah. <laughs> and he points out that forcing people with ethnic concerns to claim that their stresses on social services is you know what what worries them uh, that results in policy that denies service to immigrants it damages the lives of immigrants without even addressing the actual grievance of the majority so harm is done for no purpose because to does, them maybe the the people that are for those economic harms are just content with like, well, at least life won't be easy for them while they're here taking our gerbs. No. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That's might be like, you know, yeah, at least there's that kind of view on it. And he says that racism is a mute button pressed on someone while they're still crying about a sense of loss. So just calling people racist when they have ethnic concerns is really shitty. Well, they have, Hmm. He also points out that the greatest um, blowback effect of this was Brexit, because um, what people were really concerned about was, you know, their surrounding shifting, their culture changing. Uh, they had, as he calls them, ethnic concerns. Uh, but to prevent the appearance of racism, media, politicians and voters all uh, rephrased their immigration concerns as anti-EU concerns, uh, because as as I put it, you can't be racist against white people. So... You can be anti-EU, and that was that is your proxy for the immigration fight. And uh, that led to the EU becoming a punching bag for a lot of controller concerns, and then Britain dropping out of the EU in Brexit, which, first of all, has been a giant clusterfuck, <laughs> and which most of the people don't even want. Like, you've, I've seen interviews with, I'm sure we've all seen interviews of people yeah. who voted for Brexit and are like, yeah, this is really terrible. I don't want all these economic things to happen, but... Uh, it was important. And I mean, a lot of those people still say that they would still vote for it. Some don't. Uh, probably enough of a margin that it wouldn't pass now. But the point is, they were making that vote because of ethnic concerns, not because of economic concerns. And they all knew that leaving the EU was going to be an economic blow. And yet they were willing to pay that price to 
preserve their sense of ethnic continuity with you know their their surroundings and their ancestors hmm. here's where i am getting kind of <laughs> annoyed mm-hmm. where it's like the it sounds like the author is trying to say that this was not actually racism but like ethnic concerns are something different yes i think i could see that to some extent and then there is to some like there is some extent where i think that this is actually crossing the line into racism and like why i have a harder time feeling bad for some people on the other side he yeah he does have a few chapters that addresses that and I mean, he says flat out that barring non-whites from immigration is racist. It's straight up racist to say non-whites can't come in. But um, limiting immigration to a rate that where the immigrants can be assimilated into popular culture and and people are comfortable with, you know, a slower mm. flow of people that are acclimated into the national culture is um, is not necessarily racist. And he says that assumption is has been smuggled in when it shouldn't have been. Hmm. Um, he gives one really interesting example about this. Uh, Israel is famous for having completely open borders to everyone of Jewish descent, right? Right. Um, Jerusalem has now been taken over by the ultra-Orthodox. Yeah. Uh, where if you're driving a car on Sunday, the populace of Jerusalem will stone you. Or they'll stone your car anyway. I don't think they pull you out and kill you, okay. but they throw <laughs> stones at the car. Is throwing a stone not work? I mean, it will smash your windows and dent your car. No, no. I mean, I guess the whole point is you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You right? are allowed to work to oh, the unbelievers. Okay. <laughs> uh, there is no billboards allowed in Jerusalem that show an uncovered woman's face. There's, uh. yeah. I mean, if Denver were to be taken over by fucking ultra orthodox fundamentals like that, I would have an issue too. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want that. So I can see, I mean, I, I always try to turn around and look at it from like, what if my city was being swamped by fucking orth, ultra-Orthodox people or, you know, yeah. fundamentalist Christians, fundamentalist Muslims, whatever. But then I think it comes down to the whole, like, I think there are some aspects of some cultures that are better than others. So I, I, agree. I don't think that there's an equivalency. I I but, agree. But then that again, are, I have my values and they have their other values. Right. <laughs> there like, are some aspects uh, that are definitely better, but... It and would, you can you can differentiate those from racial val or racial anything, right? Like none, of, none, even, none of us in Denver want the, um, dude. I would even be upset if Denver was taken over by a majority of New Yorkers. <laughs> like New Yorkers are great people. I know a bunch of them, and when some of them move to Denver, they're great. They bring a new <laughs> variety to the city. And... Some of my best friends are New Yorkers. Exactly, yeah, sure. <laughs> literally true. Yeah. But <laughs> well, not best friends, no, but re- some of my friends are New Yorkers. I, but the reason like, I moved here was that it like I, I could have moved to New York. I chose Denver because of the culture. Where yeah, things are slower. People are a bit friendlier. If uh, Denver were to turn into New York, I would not be happy. There's not as much of the like workaholic like culture. <laughs> and if for some reason the sea levels rise, New York becomes in in a habitable Inha- uninhabitable thank you and all the new yorkers decide to move to denver i would be okay with like you know what let's put a restriction immigrations on new yorkers <laughs> maybe we'll take in a hundred thousand per year that's a lot but it's enough say that if like they needed somewhere to go either i mean i know that that's kind of bringing in a whole nother issue but like there's other d- there's other the author, cities I guess, in the differentiate country. between people where like or um situations where there's heavy immigration due to just people like trying to you know do a general economic improvement it's a good place to move versus like refugees trying to get like somewhere they can survive he did mention that uh it wasn't a thing he touched on for very long because for the most part it doesn't matter to the electorate why they're being Mm. um flooded with immigrants just the effect on their life is what matters but he did point out that uh if we had a more sane immigration policy that uh 
acknowledged that cultural concerns are an issue, then it would be easier to have uh, refugee camps inside uh, the nation's borders. Right now, most refugee camps are just on the other side of the border because once someone is within your borders, it's much harder to uh, get them out again, which leads <laughs> to all sorts of humanitarian crises because there's people in, like, in this basically no man's land where there's no state that they're just sort of stockpiling and it's not a great place to be. And he's mm. saying this is entirely due to the fact that we cannot talk about immigration in a sane way. Um, he did say that uh, identifying as white is not related to antipathy to outgroups, i.e. whites dislike minorities isn't true. That uh, you can identify as white and still be okay with other people, just like you can identify as Japanese and be okay with non-Japanese people or whatever. Does he do any expanding on what it means to identify as white like identify as white because that's what it look like mm -hmm. um i don't i don't Versus have a like hold white culture yeah I don't, I don't have like a i'm a white guy bumper sticker he actually the entire <laughs> second half of the book and where the term white shift comes from is a talk about identifying as white so i'll get to that all right okay. Sounds fun. um he goes on to say that uh he talks about what uh, is the cosmopolitan vision for america a lot that elites advance that and that I think all of us in this room and possibly most of the people listening to this podcast would all fit under the uh, the heading of cosmopolitans. Um, mm -hmm. That they're people who like diversity, who like novelty of experience, um, generally more educated and more liberal. We, we embrace these sorts of things. Our lives are generally more full of change and adventure and less tied to tradition. And, um, or we're more risk tolerant. Maybe that, yeah. <laughs> or something, uh, I don't know. Anyway. And he said that, uh, yeah, overwhelmingly, the people who voted for or against Trump uh, were the people who were cosmopolitan versus traditionalist. That uh, when controlling for education, income had no effect on if a white person voted for or against Trump. So it wasn't a economic thing. Uh, he said education was the best indicator of support. And that's in his claim that because education reflects people's subjective worldviews, uh, not just their wealth, which is why when he said when controlling for education, wealth had no impact. Wait, you're saying the more educated mm. people voted for Trump? No, the more educated did not vote for him. Okay. The you more educated support. you were, the more, yeah, the more cosmopolitan you are. Oh, okay, I gotcha. He studied a study that mm -hmm. um, teens with uh, more openness self-select into universities, that uh, liberal children at age 13 in, end up at a university much more often than less liberal children, despite uh, wealth of family or IQ differences. And that uh, this is really why university education, the, the university-educated demographic is uh, more liberal. It's not because of things they learn at the university. It's because they select into those sorts of environments. And, you know, there are some more right-wing universities that cater to the people who do not have that psychological profile i think part of that too isn't it like most universities are like 90 percent uh of the uh, educating staff are liberal they are now it used to not be the case but yeah that changed a few decades ago where it, now it's very strongly on that that side and so if you if you're not a liberal you're like well i'm not going to bother going to csu because i know they're going to just throw a bunch of liberal bullshit at my face and i'm going to have to regurgitate it for a test right so that's not necessarily like, well, I'm choosing to be less educated. It's just like, I don't want to bother. Like, I wouldn't go to a, an explicitly conservative uni university, right? Yeah. So he was saying that education is more of a proxy metric for uh, openness and cosmopolitanness. 
And uh, that is why his claim mm-hmm. that cosmopolitanness is what decided whether you voted for or against Trump. You know, I'm really struggling between whether I like morally think that being cosmopolitan is actually better. <laughs> I think it's different. I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. Hmm. And did, yeah, you, did you define cosmopolitan already? Um, it's a word that I, I'm pretty sure I understand. But Cosmopolitan being more embracing of change and excited by novelty and diversity. It's basically openness. Yeah. It's basically the yeah the openness psycho the openness psychological trait taken as a lifestyle. Okay, that's consistent with with what I thought, and that makes sense in retrospect with everything you said too. Perfect. He pointed out that only thirty six percent of university graduates that say my education matters a lot to my identity also say that their nation is important to who they are, uh, meaning that they identify more with their credentials and class than they do with their nation and ethnicity. He says that they are the cosmopolitans. Also, uh, someone else that he quotes termed them the people from anywhere because, you know, what matters to them is their outlook and their education, not really where they came from. So they could be people from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Things I know are an important aspect of me, but my like formal education isn't. Yeah. Did you happen to see what, what I have answered yes on that survey question? Or was it specifically my education, my credentials? Well... Does your education matter a lot to your identity? Yeah, I would probably check the no on that box. Okay. If you had said, does your does your knowledge matter or something? Right. But I couldn't give less of a shit if I went to school or not. Okay. So. Then you would not count in <laughs> that particular statistic. Fair enough. Yeah. I don't know if very many people make that distinction, though. Oh, of uh, an education I, I might versus be, knowledge? Yeah, being uncharitable, but I feel like this is... I do think that's it, it, more this sounds like he's trying to make thing. an excuse for people. Like, well, they're not... They're not dumb. They just have chosen not to be educated because they have strong moral feelings. And I'm like, I don't know. Sometimes education is a proxy for intelligence, mm-hmm. though. I it, yes. I mean, like uh, crystallized intelligence, sure. So like, I personally, since we are very familiar with this demographic ourselves, um, engineers and um, nowadays programmers are, in my opinion, very high IQ working class types. They they tend to have very ap, you know concrete applications of their knowledge and yeah some of them are very cosmopolitan and liberal but a lot of them aren't a lot of the times when you think of an engineer or when I think of a NASA engineer anyway I think of like the guys in the fifties with the white button down shirts who just want to go in and do do their math and maybe would, have their martini would, at the end of the day for, I would think that more engineers and especially computer engineers would be more liberal I don't know though um. I think there, is there data on that? Uh, I think when it comes down to uh, college-educated people, engineers and computer engineers are more conservative than huh. other types of college-educated people. That would surprise me if that were true. I could be wrong. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me. This is just a recollection I have. Hmm. Could look it up, or we could be like, hey, listeners, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> listeners, please help us out here. Yeah. I'm voting for the put-it-off option and not look it up now. Cool. Okay. He did, he did, this is the part where he picked a fight with the economically left behind narrative of the Trump and Brexit voters, because he said when you stripped out location and income and instead compared people by education and cultural strata, um, there was no urban rural divide that comparing a white working class Londoner to a white working class rural voter found no difference in, uh, their, their tendency to vote for Brexit. And that was that was where I, you know, made the connection with the engineers thing because, hmm. like, your dad is an engineer, right? Yeah, and he is also strongly pro-Trump. Um, he is 
at least pro-Trump. He is pro-Trump. I, yeah. I don't think he's pro-Trump enough to even know what the hell the guy's up to. Right. Like, if I showed him the picture that he posted the day before Thanksgiving of him, you know, photoshopped over that shirtless boxer. Mm-hmm. Did you see that thing? I did. It was absurd. Wait, I haven't seen this. <laughs> it's, it's, you Google it if you want. Uh... On the day before Thanksgiving, he, he tweeted out, and then the White House retweeted it. Oh, the White uh, House retweeted it? <laughs> uh, it's oh it's a picture of him. Oh, it's a picture of his face photoshopped over that of a youthful, fit, shirtless boxer. Wait, did Trump okay. tweet this out? Yeah. Oh, I thought this was like one of his fans or something. No, he, he just tweeted it with no context. Oh, my God. And it's just like, I just imagine like <laughs> Hillary Clinton tweeting a picture of her face superimposed over that of a 30-something, you know, supermodel. Yeah. And it's like, I, so I don't know what my dad would say about that. He'd probably say, yeah, that's fucking weird. Yeah. Um, I think that my dad's just a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. Right. And as long as Trump says he's a Republican, he's going to vote for him. Which a lot of the older, you know, conservative engineer types were and you know, there are, there's a lot of liberal programmers, but there's also conservative programmers. There's a lot of very intelligent conservatives that did not vote for Trump. That's true. And man, do I respect those people. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to defend the, no, the Trump just... voters right here. I'm... I'm... <sighs> anyway. Yeah. Let's, let's push past <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, he said that um, the real thing that separated leave from remain Brexit voters who were in the same social class was their willingness to sacrifice economic benefit for their cultural concerns. But when he was, this was the chapter about the whole cosmopolitanness, he pointed out that when a country succumbs to cultural nationalism, it loses face in the court of cosmopolitan opinion. That Brexit introduced a sense of shame among the British cosmopolitans, uh, and electing Trump did the same for Americans. And, I mean... That certainly rings true with my experience because a lot of people I know who I would consider cosmopolitan, including myself, felt really embarrassed for the nation when we elected Trump. <laughs> and <laughs> still do. <laughs> I, I've gotten over the embarrassment. I mean, the fact that he lost the popular vote just enrages me. I remember, I don't know if I've mentioned this, in high school, it would have been somewhere around 2006, seven or eight. Um, I was misquoted in the high school newspaper as being like anti-voting um, <laughs> and what I was complaining about was like the the only time in my life that a Republican has won the national or has won the uh, popular vote was in 2004 um, so every other time Republicans won they've lost the popular vote but won because of electoral college mm-hmm. and that always even as a kid kind of annoyed me I'm like why do you get to lose the mo- most voters didn't want you to want you to be president why are you still president like that, that question still isn't something that I really have a solid answer to. Um, I understand your concern, but I also have heard it said that um, they would run their their uh, campaigns in completely different ways if it was a popular vote instead of an electoral college vote. I mean, they're running the campaign to play the game that's before them. It would be like if foot, the hmm. rules to football were different, people would play football entirely differently, and you can't really complain that, like, well, if the rules were this, you wouldn't have won. And we're like, yeah, but that's not what the rules are. We right. played by the rules. I'm complaining so about I'm complaining about the rules. The rules are stupid. Yeah. yeah. And so my my I I, I guess I, I don't have that much sense of shame because it's like, oh, you lost by hundreds of thousands of votes. Like most people didn't want you to be president. So or most voters rather. Yeah. Um hmm. so I'm not if if Trump won by seventy percent, then I'd be like, Oh man, America's fucking stupid. I, I'm embarrassed to be here. But the fact is, he didn't. Yeah. So I, I'm not. I, I'm not that embarrassed about it. Um, I think I was more like, <laughs> come to think, embarrassed that 
countries who don't necessarily know how our electoral college or our voting system works, we're still going to think that we, like, the American people elected this guy. Yeah. I but would... then again, like, now that I'm thinking about it, I, <laughs> I'm not sure how, uh, like, do other countries, like, generally know how America's electoral system works? I think they do now. It may have, I mean, I'm sure it's been popularized online, hmm. but, I mean, at the very least, you might hopefully i'm hoping that the headline percolated across the globe that you know donald trump loses popular vote still wins election yeah um you think yeah but in any case i don't know i'd be curious to know about that too like if any of our listeners are not from the u.s do you generally know how like the u.s voting system works or is there general understanding that trump lost the popular vote i don't know how other countries voting systems work or at least i wasn't taught that in school no i wasn't either I mean, I picked up through through listening to the news that it's a proportional representation thing. And even when I was like, you know, young, I don't know if I knew it in my teens already, probably late teens, definitely. Uh, I was like, that is really smart. Why don't we do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, we're back, stuck with the legacy system. Back to white shift. Okay, back to white shift. Um, yes, uh, in the cosmopolitan vision of multiculturalism, there's really no place for the ethnic majority. Uh, as we were saying earlier, like, what is the white culture? No one knows what it is. Would there be anything lost? Uh, the only thing that ethnic majority really is good for is uh, apologists for past misdeeds, which, you know, understandably may irritate people are of that culture. Can you expand on that? Apologists for past misdeeds? Um, that So the ethnic culture represents that or is that or what? Uh, yeah, in the cosmopolitan vision, the ethnic majority doesn't really have much culture of worth the only thing they're really there for is to like be i'm sorry we oppressed you i'm sorry we colonized you i'm sorry we enslaved you and like they don't have much to add nowadays to the cultural soup hmm i mean i would consider myself cosmopolitan but i have none of those things yeah like i mean i i sympathize with the fact that historically you've been that you being minority groups have been subjugated by the ethnic group I happen to be a part of, mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't do shit. Right. And I think you're, yeah, you're allowed to feel sympathy for people who have been oppressed, like while not like saying, and and I did it to you, <laughs> yeah. and I and I feel bad about it for that reason as well. But what is your group um, like? Both of you guys, uh, your group as white people contribute to the the cultural milieu. I think this sounds this like podcast. someone that doesn't believe in, <laughs> okay. huh? I said this podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, like, I, I, don't, I don't do anything outside for the most part. Well, not you specifically, but like when you think of white people as a group. I have no idea. Exactly. I'd have, I'd have to have some time to think about that. Hang on, what was the question? What do white people as a group, you as part of the white people, what has your group, our group, I guess I'm white too, what has <laughs> our group, what, what do we do culturally? What have we done? Oh, of like... good. Starbucks. I, I don't know, man. <laughs> right. That's the, that's the kind of sarcastic answer right that's the only answer if uh, you are uh, that sounds like uh, i mean like I, I would actually argue that like white people have you know contributed a lot to innovation and so forth but like this sounds like this author doesn't believe in white privilege being a thing um he does but he also mentions white privilege later on okay i'm, I'm a bit curious what he has to say about that because like i'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt this is really coming off as someone who is conservative being an <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, Justin's response to the your your question brought forward an act, like an actual line of thinking. Like mm-hmm. I could say the Enlightenment mentality, mm-hmm. the scientific method, mm-hmm. um, space travel. Yeah, uh, you know the 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 fact of history is that you weren't allowed to play this game if you weren't white, but that doesn't mean that white people didn't do it. Right? right? Would you um, feel embarrassed to say that white people are responsible for us landing on the moon? No, that sounds historically accurate, if also historically unfortunate. Yeah. Well, well, and also not completely accurate. I mean, there were black people involved too, but... Like, predominantly white people were involved, though. Yeah. Right, yeah, I wasn't saying that there were no minorities involved, but... Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was because of the way the system was. It didn't allow black people to participate, but... Yeah. It's I, also still a true statement, I guess. I, I'm willing to acknowledge both that white people have been responsible for some really cool stuff, and that also that they've done some terrible stuff, and, like, that's... I think most cultures, actually. And that more minorities would have been able to contribute to the awesome stuff that white people did if they'd been allowed to play the game, right? Yeah. If you'd been allowed to attend college and work in labs, maybe vaccines had been invented 30 years earlier, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I think also the fact that we make all these caveats is part of the point. Like, I would never go out in public and say white people are responsible for us walking on the moon. Because I would expect other white racist. people to attack me. So yeah. the author's point, it sounds like Huey particularly has like a beef about our the white people that go around saying that we, the, the current modern white people, need to atone for our sins or for like our ancestors' sins, which I think probably like, you know, to be fair, there are people that do think that we should do that and that like we do bear that, that shame and that burden. I don't think we do in like... I don't think we owe anything to people in the past because they're dead, but I think that we do, uh, I think white privilege does exist and we do continue to, just because of the legacy of the systems that our ancestors set up, benefit from higher positions and we should take like that into consideration. Yeah. I think a lot of his point is that he knows he's writing for the college educated cosmopolitan audience. And Mm -hmm. so he's trying to like point out, Hey, this is an actual thing. Other people feel oppressed and shitty by what you're doing. Like, here's evidence of that. And I still don't know if I buy that they, like, are entirely blameless and don't deserve to have their culture stamped out of it. I, like I said, I have huge beefs with honor culture, and I don't think honor culture should exist. Hmm. Because. So, sorry, go ahead. No, good. Just they're awful. But yeah, go on. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, the This is probably, let me know if this is an aside and we cover it later. But there, you, you guys are familiar with those signs people keep hanging up at universities that say it's okay to be white. I'm not that familiar with that. I did not know that was a thing. I think oh, I heard then, about a backlash to that. Yeah, there was huge backlashes, including like apologies from deans and stuff. Um, so then, yeah, I'll save it for later. <laughs> Other than I think that this originated on 4chan and then they were like, oh, this will piss off the libtards. Let's put these up because like it's OK to be white is that's not that's sounds perfectly true on face value. It's OK, <laughs> right. it's okay to be anything. Right. Yeah. Um, but that implies so much. And mm-hmm. it's it especially like. It, it's supposed to like be a kick in the gut for people who say you should be embarrassed to be white or something, or you should feel bad or whatever, mm-hmm. um, white privilege, etc. Uh, but yeah, without all the um, background knowledge, then there's no point in talking about it other than it sounds slightly related, but yeah. not enough to derail for too long. Okay. He did want to, um, well, one last thing about that. Uh, this was just a quote that really stood out to me. Uh, that Justin Trudeau boasted that Canada is the most multicultural country in the world, and that it is a completely new society with, quote, no, no core identity and no mainstream. 
Which just does not sound like something I would boast about, you know? Like, we have no identity! Wait, haven't... That kind of just been around as long as the US, right? Uh-huh. Right about. Uh, did, did they not have a white culture? I... He, hey. Justin Trudeau, says they're the most multicultural country, and they have no cohort identity. I, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a cosmopolitan boast. Well, I, can ima- I can imagine President Obama saying something similar, mm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, just because the president said it doesn't mean shit. No, it doesn't mean shit, but it, it is an example of, like, what the ideals are. Sure. Yeah. Mm. And mm. so, anyway, he's, he's trying to say that ethnocultural anxiety may sound racist and has been pushed as racist for a long time in order to prevent uh, immigration restriction, but it's not racist. It's just ethnically concerned. Okay. <laughs> He's, he, he said that one-third of blacks and Latinos want less immigration um, in, in surveys that are taken on this, and that uh, Trump took 28% of the Latino vote. vote. Uh, he said that Hispanics are more likely than whites to say that being white and Christian are important to being truly in quotes, American. Uh, he also said that more Hispanic Trump voters agreed that America must protect its white European heritage than white Trump voters did by 59 to 47%. I'm really confused by the point the author's trying to make right now. Like, I think he's just other races are also racist. So therefore, I don't think that that's. I think he's saying other races also acknowledge that there's a culture, an ethnic culture, and that some people want to preserve the ethnic cultures. It, uh, yeah, it sounds like what he's saying is that because people of other races are also racist, then that means that like people of other races can't be racist, so therefore this isn't racist. <laughs> gotcha. I, I take it to mean that it could definitely mean that, but it could also mean like if you if you do think that there's something about American culture that you like, um, especially if you or your parents emigrated here, then yeah, they would think that's important. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure why your parents chose America over somewhere else. They, I mean, um, they they definitely have some issues with America, which I hear about <laughs> endlessly. But uh, for the most part, they're like, yeah, this is one of the best countries on earth, and this is why we immigrated here. And and I I, I see a lot of this, um, you know, huge anti-American backlash, especially from I don't know white thirty year olds, right? Right. Um, we're the worst country to all this terrible shit. It's like we're not that bad. Like, like, granted, yeah, we're not as we're not as awesome as we pretend to be on the news sometimes, depending on which news you watch. Um, but there's a reason people still want to come to America, yeah. and it's not because it's low hanging fruit. Yeah, um, we're complicated. We're both like good and bad. Right. <laughs> I like don't really appreciate people who have either opinion that we're great or that we're bad. I I know that my parents would have been very unhappy if American culture changed to be uh, what they fled from. And I know I've heard that from other immigrants that have come here. That's the point. They came here because they wanted to get away from where, where they were. Yeah, they liked Granted, the culture. Yours were fleeing war, which is sort of intense. Well, it uh, wasn't a war at the time. They're fleeing uh, Soviet totalitarian it would regime. Have burgeoned into war, maybe, was the threat. I don't know. It could have. Or just, or just hating totalitarianism, right? Yeah. I mean, and it could have burgeoned into war, but if it did, like the U.S. was going to be involved in that war, too. I think you mean they're just, they were fleeing a threat. Regardless of whether it was a war or not, they, it wasn't a threat. It was the regime themselves they hated, or at least my dad. My mom hmm. also disliked they didn't see it, it, but as not being as strongly dangerous. as my dad. They just, they just didn't agree with it. There was there was always like some level of implicit danger, but my dad had already served, you know, years not years more than a year of jail time for refusing to uh, do his mandatory uh, military service, and there's 
they took risks. I mean, they certainly knew that when they were planning to flee, they could be, if the word got out, secreted away into a detention wow. facility or whatever. But uh, and that's not dangerous. <laughs> no, no, that was that was definitely dangerous. It would have been less dangerous not to try to flee. But there was, there's just some level of background danger you get used to when you live in this society. I guess like mm. we have the background danger of of cars killing us, which we just take entirely in stride. And there were some things that were like it wasn't it wasn't the danger that they were fleeing. It was the society itself. The fact that he could not um work for himself and use his skills to enrich himself that that it was going to the government and that he had to do what they said interesting he was, he was very much a get your foot off my neck you assholes kind of person and that's something that you know as a positive america kind of stands for yeah as hard as it is maybe to start a business or whatever i mean that's that's what so I, not so many i don't have numbers but many immigrants do they yeah. come over and they 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 do the american dream they they start a business they they work hard and they they enrich themselves because you actually can't here you legally could not start a business in soviet poland wild yeah yeah and yeah, i feel like that's kind of interesting and as like why we do continue to be such a powerful and innovative cultures that we're like brain draining from places who have people that are more likely to want to be the kind of person to start a business yeah. than average i mean this is this is the argument for open borders right yeah exactly <laughs> it's why we find immigration to be a good um okay moving forward he did note that pop policy agendas pushed by the populist right are actually more popular than the parties themselves that in britain up to 60 percent want immigration greatly re reduced but no more than 30 percent were willing to back the pop right party the people, the public doesn't have a lot of info on the actual opinions of the party members, and so they rely much more on the brand. And you know, the populist right are kind of the asshole fascist brand, uh, for good reason, I would think. Unless you're on the right, then you think that they're the the party of sensibility and continuity. Maybe. I think uh, that's, I think that's I, not. I think that's not an unfair way to put it. I think they think, hey, things are stable. We want them to not change. That's yeah. that's the. If you're a right winged person, that's. I think charitably what you think. And this this goes right into his next point, which was really cool. Like people wouldn't vote for them because they wanted to protect their own reputation. Like you don't want other people to think you're a fascist and shit, right? But then uh, lately, nowadays, uh, taboos have been kind of breaking down. Like the, again, I hate to bring up Trump again, but like lots of times he'll say things that is just flat out misogynistic or racist and he gets called out on it and he's like, eh, that's just more PC bullshit. Because there's been a backlash against what used to be the, you know, political correctness ideal taboo thing. And now that that's all in flux, he can just say, well, I'm just not not being a politically correct person. And other people who would not have who would not have uh, voted for those parties see that, like, he isn't being punished, that it's more of these people are OK voting for these parties. And so what they secretly wanted before is now coming more to the forefront whole preference falsification collapsing sort of way um he he did say like taboos are generally very good and make society better gave the taboo on public urination as an example <laughs> but uh when a a charge of deviancy is laid on someone and it doesn't stick then the norms begin to unwind leading to what he calls intense cultural contestation which i think we are referring to as the culture war and uh yeah he says that's happening right now and the liberal norm of political correctness is what's being challenged uh, he sounds the alarm that the potential new social norms that are being proposed uh, define Muslims and cosmopolitans as deviant. So that uh, losing this thing could be a big issue. 
uh, I guess deviant in two different directions. Deviant in terms of uh, they would be the ones who would be tabooed and shamed into having to hide their preferences. Right, but I was picturing deviant as in like the other side, but they really mean two other sides. Right. Okay, I, I think that... Possibly. Like, I think the people on the right who are fighting this would both want to have Muslims and Cosmopolitans, uh, the people who are ashamed and hiding their preferences. Totally. But for different reasons, I'm guessing. I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, majority Muslim countries tend to be fairly conservative. Yes. So they're, they're, not, they're not ostracizing them for their lack of conservatism. No, they're, they're ostracizing them for being Muslim. Right. Yeah. So that's what I meant, right? I was just... Oh, for different me, reasons. Yeah, but, yeah, getting my wires aligned correctly he pulled up an interesting statistic nowadays 20 somethings are 17 percent less likely than 40 somethings to say that muslim clergymen preaching hate against the u.s should be allowed to speak in public and they're also less willing to let communists speak in public he says this is the first time that the youth are less tolerant than their parents since surveys began in the 1950s he also said 20 to 30 percent of students agree that using violence to silence an offensive speaker is appropriate and 80 percent agree that speech can be violence which kind of brings us back to our whole punching a Nazi uh, episode. Hmm. Yeah, you said what it was thirty percent of twenty somethings. So now he's talking about regressive left. Yeah. Well, I I, I well, don't I mean, know I mean, how regressive that is, and I don't know if it's even the left because the the twenty somethings said merging Muslim clergymen preaching hate against the U.S. should be silenced, which is not even a left thing. That's more of a right thing. Just in general, the youth are less tolerant. I don't know. If, uh, I mean, not to not to bring us back to punching Nazis on but speech like, issues anyway. Yeah, I I feel like telling somebody who's up there saying kill all the Jews. If you tell them to shut up, I don't think that's a bad thing. No, I don't either. <laughs> so so where we would fit in that group of people who think that we should we I don't know what it means to silence somebody, but yeah. maybe to maybe to, to use not, violence too. Yeah, does is that what it means? Let's generally yes. or does that mean all right I'm gonna, how else I'm gonna, are you going to silence someone i'm going to not invite you on my podcast i'm going to cut your feet if you're a talking head on my news show no i mean that's different that's yeah, more like, like protesting politely yeah that's more like people having riots and making people feel endangered if they were going to talk somewhere uh, see if i had taken that survey i would have interpreted it i guess the different way of saying yes i would i would not um well it says, air them on the local news it says should be allowed to speak in public like would you take that as I won't hand them the microphone, or would you take that as if they're speaking in public, this should be not allowed? Okay, yeah, that's that's fair. Um, I I misinterpreted the question. Yeah. I think be this is the difference between um, this person should still be allowed to speak, but they should be like it, it's okay if protesters form a wall of signs around them or something. I think a wall of signs is the way that I've always liked it. But I, that's not I, that, that, that's not violence as this person's defining it. Exactly. Well, I don't think it is. I, my favorite example is this: this pastor used to make tours around universities that came through when I was at CSU, and Pastor Jeb or Father Jeb or something Jed, whatever his name was. <laughs> um, that's and a he, really he would, pastor name. Regardless. He, he would, and it might not have been Jed. It was something one Jeb. syllable. I think started with a J, but. Um, <laughs> He would stand up there and be like, "You fornicators are all going to hell!" Blah blah blah, blah. like just screaming the insane <laughs> bullshit of the of the ultra ultra religious. And you know, there was a guy standing next to him in a gorilla costume holding some funny sign. <laughs> and I, like, I think that's the appropriate way to, to engage that. Yeah, because for some idiot re well, for some po probably defensible reason, he's allowed to interrupt our learning experience by standing on standing on campus with a microphone. Mm. Um, so as long as that's allowed. Well, it, it may be standing next to him with a, with a louder microphone. That would be more silencing him. But yeah. at least standing there next to him holding a sign saying, I'm with stupid or something, which was uh, 
not as intelligent as whatever sign this guy was holding. I forget what it was. You weren't being forced to watch his speech either. I mean, like, by interrupting your educational experience, like, I think generally you, you attend the speech or not. Well, it's, it's it was like in the it was in the oh, like, the the, the hev- most heavily foot trafficked area of the of the campus. Okay, so you couldn't avoid it. I mean, you you could, but by taking a ten minute detour. Mm. So like, you know, that's the same same plaza they'd put up those gigantic fake pictures of aborted fetuses that look like sad little babies, right? right? Oh, yeah. um, and they're and these things are like fifteen feet by ten feet, you know. So like, you you can't miss them, and they're they're gratuitous and gross and bloody, and it's like if you don't want to see them, you have to make a pretty big roundabout to yeah. avoid them. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm for silencing that or not. I definitely found it annoying. I think I'm for opt in. <laughs> like if you could put like ad block on real life. But that's, that's, that kind of eliminates the point of them being there. Right. Cause they want to be there to scream yeah. at people's faces who aren't there to opt in. Um, yeah. And that's where I would like change free speech laws. I guess you're allowed to say what you want. You're not allowed to like barricade someone and then scream it in their face. If they don't want to hear it, they should be able to leave. So th- this wasn't that to be fair. You could walk by with headphones and ignore him, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I, I don't know. This is getting us kind of far afield, but it's something it to think is. about. <laughs> I, I'm still solidifying my positions on how to handle stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, we're starting to run out of time. So I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. Not too much though. Um, he did say, uh, interestingly, that attitudes to immigration are shaped more by people's perceived changes to their imagined national community than to what is actually happening in their locale. So uh, he, he made this point several times. Uh, the news reporting, especially news reporting that like is often showing like how awful immigrants are and how they've committed these crimes and stuff uh, and how we're being overflowed with immigrants is a serious problem because it is making people have this image in their head of an America that is actually not the one we're actually living in. He said there was a survey that uh, most people think that their U.S. is 16% Muslim or possibly more when it's (laughs) actually less than 1% Muslim uh, just because of how much this is on the news. There's also, I mean, this is what they did, what, in the 2018 election, the the right-wing media was posting all those things about those caravans of yeah. many thousands of people moving towards the border. <laughs> right. And then those people all just evaporated after the election. Yeah. Um, it r- Related to that number, I remember reading something about the perceived number of like of black people in the United States. People estimate it's 30. People think that I think 15% of people are gay or something. Um, <laughs> and that the, this was from like representative. I think this was a, an, an article talking about like how heavily people are represented on like in media. Okay. And when in th- when in fact thirteen percent of the country is black and somewhere between five and twelve percent is gay. I think that number is fluctuating <laughs> over the lo- over the last decade just because. Steve is looking at me like I know the number. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you do. I, I, I'm confident that you have a better guess than I do. No, I don't. Oh well. Um, <laughs> uh, the so it's it's not really it's it's only related in the fact that i can i can imagine that the uh, well this is just another anecdata about the number the people perceive a greater number of population based on what they see on tv right mm-hmm. um or how much they see it being talked about 16 yeah. percent is is wildly high i wish you'd asked me what i thought the percentage was <laughs> oh, shit i should um, have if there's any other data if there's any other questions like that yeah. ask okay um i think i thought the numbers were higher I, I like would have guessed higher than categories. one. I probably would have guessed 5%. I would have guessed higher than one as well. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah. No, he goes on at length about how the media can, um, can not at length, but for a chapter about how the media can uh, twist public perception like that and how it's pretty fucked up. Um, he, 
Okay, so skipping ahead to the thing you said about racism. Uh, he said mm-hmm. that there's a lot of fervor around racism and a lot of definitions um, that are just kind of thrown about. So because of this fervor, he wanted to have clear definitions on what makes words or acts racist can I, uh, to can defend I, the taboo against racism. Can we do the thing where we each define what we think racism is before we give the book definition? I think that's a wonderful idea. So I would define it as one of two things one i think my race is better than your race or b i think your race is worse than my race both of those or one of those i think i think if you think either of those that's racism okay and like they're, they're essentially the same thing but i can imagine someone giving one of those two replies gotcha i guess you can't believe one without believing the other you can't believe one without believing the other yeah, but yeah, i could see people true. giving those two yeah i mean if it was multiple choice someone might only check one box right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah on- honestly i think the same as steven like that would have been my definition. Okay. Um, he first defines ethnic groups as communities of birth, just as a thing. Uh, but he says his three definitions of racism are anything that is, one, antipathy to an ethnic outgroup, or two, a quest for racial purity, or three, racial discrimination, which violates right to equal treatment under the law. So neither of those encompass what I was talking or none, none three of those encompass what I was talking about. Not really, yeah. Yeah. Because you could, you could think your racial group is better without being without having an antipathy to outgroups mm-hmm. likewise you could have antipathy towards outgroups while still thinking everyone's created equal or something right um, i guess that quickly brings me to the question do you think the japanese are super racist uh you wouldn't know it by talking with them but i my understanding is that yes especially yeah. if you ask them to rank themselves against other asians right the way the way americans normally define racism they absolutely are because yeah they think they are just better as a people right and i mean I I don't have a checklist of things that I compare to see whether groups of people are better than others, but in general, I think that is not a way of thinking that I am on board with. I mean, there are, and most of what I know about Japanese culture actually comes from one of my coworkers who spent years over there and married somebody from China, and so that's not Japanese culture, but he spent a lot of time in Asia, years of his life, and I was over there for twelve days. But there are part of of there are parts of Japanese culture that I really liked mm-hmm. that I could see like, Oh, that'd be great if we brought that to Denver. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, you know, like they're, they're, they tend to be more sexist, I think, than, than the average Westerner, uh, the mm-hmm. average enlightened Westerner. Yeah. Um, there is way less of a concern about animal equality over in Japan than there is here. Um, um, I'm I think, not sure about that. I think it was. And, and definitely in China. There were, you were what? Definitely in China, but I don't know about Japan. I think in Japan, I, I would have to check. One of the guys I went with was vegetarian. And I think mm-hmm. he said that something like 4% of Japanese are vegetarian or something, mm-hmm. which I think was radically less than the U.S. Um, but even just like the, the treatment over there. Um, huh. Like I went to some owl cafe that would never be allowed to be open in the U.S. Um, hmm. I mean, it was while I was already there, I was like, all right, I'll pet him and look at everything and whatever. But it wasn't the kind of place I could support. Uh, oh, interesting. I find that surprising. I, I never I, thought about that. I'll 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 double check my if if someone can correct me on that I'm all for it. But that was my perception, and I feel like I had that from more just my than more than just my anecdote from being there. Hmm. Um, I also get the feeling that that's how almost all peoples in the world view themselves. Like I think it's what is better or as better, yeah, in general. Like you know, the people in the mm-hmm. Somalis think that they're better than the people in Egypt. The Egyptians think they're the better than the people in Somalia, and like. Just in general, it's it's yeah. always most people have a feeling of like my culture is the best culture. Certainly, if you're everyone constant, else is not as good. Certainly, if you're constantly at war with your neighbors. Yeah, but even uh, when you're not at war, I, I I wouldn't expect the average person to think that they were better. 
not the average enlightened white cosmopolitan person in the U.S. Right? I mean, they well, certainly no, I mean, couldn't like ever the say that. Anywhere. But I think I think most people do. Like that's been sort of a common thing throughout all of human history, hasn't it? Um, I think it's one thing to say our culture is better, not we as a race are better. Well, our people are the best people. Okay, yeah, then that's different. Yeah. Maybe is that different enough? I don't know. Maybe I misheard before, mm. but um, I think ethnicity is so tied in with culture generally, anyway, that usually the two boil down to the same thing. Well, unless your ethnicity, I don't know. I mean, what percentage of the United States is non-white? I don't know. That didn't come up in this book? Um, come on, Hoffman. It actually might have come up in the book. I just didn't write it down. It might have been one of those graphs that you skimmed over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So Okay, anyways. Um, so he well, he's going on to say that most ethnic anxiety isn't specifically racist because it isn't about antipathy to outgroups or quests for racial purity Uh, he points out that minorities generally vote for the party that goes out of its way to consider their interests and or to protect them and uh why would we expect that white people would act differently um he also points out that being attached to an ethnic group and looking out for its interests is different from hating an outgroup and that again it is something that a lot of uh people do and that we oftentimes laud people for doing in the u.s that like you know Yes, keep your keep your cultural tradition strong. We usually find that to be a a cool thing. Can you give an example? Um, I know a friend of a friend who uh, got married to an uh, Indian uh, lady, and they went and had the with her family the big traditional Indian wedding with the I don't know whatever their traditional clothes are and all that, and that a lot of people would say that is a cool thing to have in the u.s and that um that should be encouraged i know specifically there's some programs to uh keep cultures that are in decline from going out uh, entirely such as the native american cultures there's a lot of uh programs to keep those languages alive and such not a lot but i know there's at least one that i know of to keep Mm -hmm. their language and their culture going and that in general if someone were to say you know there's so few of my people in this city can i have just a few relatives immigrate over here that we'd be like yeah sure that that's cool hmm. oh see i i took it to the, the original snippet of the book to mean that people would defend like oh yeah keeping your your white culture or something is is, is laudable and i was like i don't know anybody would say that mainly because we still don't know what white culture is right um, which but, is part of the problem yeah yeah but because... I, I could imagine that yeah if i knew you know, two American Indian people who wanted to uh, have a traditional American Indian style wedding or something, I'd be like, oh, cool. Good for you guys. Um, I might even think it was a bummer if they were like, oh no, we're going to do the white thing because we're, we're in Denver. (laughs) Right. Um, I'd be like, oh, that sucks. You guys should have done whatever you felt like doing not what you felt like people wanted. Yeah. I don't really think the white thing is terribly enlightened. The, you know, the white dress and the virginity thing and the, (laughs) oh yeah. Yeah. If you're going like the, Protestant, yeah. Yeah. Um, He says, ethnicity arises mostly from attachment to a collective memory and identification with group symbols. Those symbols include things like physical appearance, styles, and traditions. Just to give a quick definition for ethnicity, which I probably should have done right at the top of this instead of this late in. Um, And he points out that people are inclined to flock to those like themselves. I would like to point out, for example, that we very much prefer the company of other rationalists and even try to encourage them to move to Denver so there'll be more of us here. Gray. <laughs> <laughs> you can join us, Gray. 
he points out that the more choice people have, the more segregated they are uh, in all walks of life. Uh, people often like refer to the white flight to the suburbs, but he says this is not just the rich. That in public housing assistance programs that let choose people where to live, uh, they live in much more segregated areas than public housing assistance programs that don't give them the choice of where to live. Hmm. You're saying people self-segregate given the choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that sounds uh, non... What's, Controversial. What's, thank you. Yeah. And so he's saying that this is an era where we have unprecedented white demographic decline and uh, th- therefore people are going to be anxious about these things and are as as some of the data points out and uh his main problem is that this does not have a democratic outlet that people have to couch or up until very recently had to couch their fears entirely in terms of economic um problems or social services problems or crime problems instead of just like i don't want to see my my culture you know diluted like this and uh so they were never there was never a way to actually address these concerns in public in a democratic process uh and therefore there was this buildup of 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 pressure of anxiety which has resulted in the crazy backlash that we see with Brexit and with Trump voting which i for one would say has been a terrible backlash and i do not want to see more of it <laughs> uh he says that large cities are ethnically and socially diverse they're constantly changing and have low social cohesion and high inequality. Um, ties to neighborhoods are always provincial, uh, provisional. Sorry. Uh, thus, the only approach to life, especially for whites or those of a mixed background who lack an ethnic enclave, is the modernist one. Be an individualist. Seek immediate experience. Suppress the desire for continuity with, with previous generations and eschew ethnic ties to the landscape. The metropolitan version of nationhood alienates conservatives who prefer stability. The people who don't like doing all those things. So, he says, once this anti-racist taboo over discussion of immigration unravels, as he says it is in the process of doing right now, the main parties must offer policy on limiting immigration. uh, Because this is a major thing that people want right now and is driving a lot of voting trends. Uh, He says that the message of change is appropriate for liberals who prefer novelty and stability. That, yeah, they totally are going to be like, we should have, you know, more immigration because we like novelty and stability. But for people who worry about their culture, they need to hear that minorities are a smaller share than they imagine and that they've been told by the news and that they will be seamlessly absorbed into us just like they have been in the past. And he gives at this point um, uh, examples of the Catholics which were once the other and have been immigrated into white uh, culture, the Irish, which were once the other, have been integrated into the white culture, the Jews, which were once the other and are now integrated into white culture, and the Italians, which actually were the, I think he said the most recent uh, group around the time of World War II. They were the, hmm. uh, they were still considered the other, and Italians, Americans were like wops and greasers and crap. But after World War II, I he didn't say this specifically. I assume it's because, you know, a lot of them fought in the war with us, and that forms a lot of national ties. Uh, they became white Americans as well. My wife, which I love using, I'm still titillated every time I get to say that. Um, <laughs> I don't think I ever will not be. Uh, That's her, so cute. Her, thank you, it is. Uh, her uh, ethnic background is majority Italian. And she was told by somebody... I forget if it was at CSU or Columbia, one of the, like some college where she was with somebody who was from not America. Um, she was like, oh, then you, like, you basically, 
have, or at least had, your, your people basically had the same status as black people. I'm not sure how out of date this person was, but apparently that was something, you know, like in this, this isn't like, apparently I learned this, but yeah, you're right. This is my, my anecdote to support that, that, um, 50, 60 years ago, it, you, you might look white, but you're not really one of us was a, was like the default, right? Did oh, they have point, it as bad as like the black community though? I'm assuming not quite as bad because they still have a home country they can go back to, some heritage. They weren't, you know, put through slavery on Jim Crow and such. But they were. And they they also weren't subjected to quite, like, as much violence or, or like. Yeah, they certainly didn't experience lynching for looking at a white woman the wrong way. Yeah. No, this was this was one person's. I think this person was black. The person was talking to 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 mm -hmm. uh, my wife. Whether they were black or not, though, I like. No, no, I'm just saying this. This was one outsider's point, perspective uh-huh. of like, oh, I've heard you've had it like that. That they had it this bad or something. Mm-hmm. That Italians had it this bad. Now that's 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 one person's wrong anecdote, but yeah. um, it probably wasn't as bad. But they were certainly outsiders. Definitely, yeah. I wasn't necessarily endorsing what this person said. I just thought that yeah. it was right. interesting that one person said this. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, going back on the how politics needs to change thing, he says a politics of the common good cannot succeed unless groups feel they're being treated fairly. This includes both minorities and those with cultural loss anxiety. He said that if that whites have been forced by left modernists to repress their ethnicity, and if whites could set out some explicit identity interests apart from those of the nation, this could allow them to better appreciate similar minority claims, producing a shared understanding. Ideally, desires for cultural protection should be openly aired in a respectful way. He said those who favor more immigration might make the case on economic or humanitarian grounds or because they are cosmopolitans and would like more diversity. They should be able to free their interests. They should be able to voice their interests as well without being accused of being unpatriotic. And that immigration policy in such a uh, regime, the selection would focus not only on economic or humanitarian principles, but also how they affect a society's constituent ethnic groups. Can I press pause on the previous bullet point? Yeah. Um, what are white people's interests that they want to be able to voice without being accused of being unpatriotic? Uh, well, cosmopolitans would be accused of being unpatriotic if they say they like diversity and they want more cultural change. Because like, well, why why are you trying to dilute our country? You oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, I was reading that from the other side, the non-cosmopolitans. Yeah. And I'm like, that sounds like, I mean... <laughs> From my perspective of being, you know, an isolated liberal, oh, I mean, isolated in a liberal culture, um, like the idea of saying, oh yeah, we, when I think of um, the the patriotic thing, it's like, yeah, let's keep America white and great again, right? Right. Um, like that sounds like the most patriotic thing somebody could say, <laughs> if, 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 depending on what platform you're on, right? Yeah. Okay. But I didn't, yeah, I missed the cosmopolitan part. Yeah. And his last point is that if the majority is aware that immigration policy is designed to facilitate assimilation, they will become less anxious. Current policy, by pretending culture doesn't exist, can only increase intolerance. Mm. I think, personally, I agree with him for the most part on all this because um, because of the whole what is true is already so thing. People do have ethnic cultural anxiety and pretending that they don't won't make it go away. And it does have these bad effects on the political sphere. If we could just talk about them openly, we could address them. And I think that would be a better world. And I also honestly do think that assimilation is a very important thing. Like my parents changed their last name to be more American. They they learned the language. They 
they did what they could. And yes, they um, have very strong accents. They keep some of their Polish heritage, but assimilation is important. I don't want the country to become, you know, a super conservative religious place. And I want my culture mm-hmm. not to change too much or too fast. I'm remembering the specifics of the person that when they visited and they were like, how do you handle all like the diversity? That's not exactly what they said, but that was essentially the one sentence version of it. Mm-hmm. It was after they were at the gas station and they were checking out with somebody who barely spoke English. Mm-hmm. And they were like, how do you, how do you deal with that or something? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, cause I never talked to the gas station attendant. <laughs> I almost never go into the gas station. Yeah. Right. So like, that's how I handle it. I remember seeing the meme of like on a New York subway, a uh, glammed up drag queen sitting right next to this uh, like Muslim lady in a full hijab. And the subtitle was like, this is the future yeah. that liberals want. I know. And then I was like, yeah. Absolutely. That would be a great future. That is the future <laughs> that I want. Yes. And uh, I would be upset if that was changed and people started enforcing like, you know, men can't wear makeup and women have to look like they're in their 50s sort of norms. And that would really piss me off. I have so mixed feelings on the hijab. I that future but... in my... Well, okay. Yes, I do too. I think that it is... It's terrible thing i think you should be allowed to wear whatever you want if someone's telling you to wear it or i'm gonna or i'm gonna hit you that's not cool yeah, yeah. there's uh, a good way to practice that whole right. tradition and then there's the yeah then there's i the disagree i don't think there's any good way to practice the tradition of being fully covered up um what and if then, you want to be fully covered up uh i i view that as the same kind of thing as people who internalize racism and internalize homophobia that it's still a bad thing and i'm not mm-hmm. going to stop them from doing that but it's never a good thing to have to be homophobic, even if you're gay. Uh, where did being homophobic come into it? Uh, it's the same sort of internalized self-hatred, in my opinion, to to hide away under a hijab like that. Well, I think only if you're interpreting it. Hmm. I don't think like, there is if, any... If you think that the idea is, I'm wearing this hijab because I'm bad for some reason, and but like the reason people wear hijab is because they... It, it, I don't know. Um, What is the actual reason? It was the... I mean, some of them like it because it's part of their culture, but that's one of those cultures yeah. that I think is bad. Hmm. It could be. What like, if you just like it artistically? Is the thing, or I mean, I think they're pretty. From what I've heard, it cuts you off from the rest of the world. Like you can't really interact meaningfully with the world when you're hidden from it. People can't really? recognize you. Yeah, I've you heard from a lot of people anonymous. who choose to wear the hijab at like our women's uh, Muslim library book event that they very much enjoy the garment. Yeah. And they it, like it, that it, it gives them a feeling of being comforted. And they don't have to worry about like putting on makeup before they leave the house or whatever, or being judged by other people on their appearance. It's something they can throw on, go to the grocery store, still feel like safe and comfortable. I mean, I think anyone should be able to throw on clothes and go to the grocery store and feel safe and comfortable no matter what clothes they're wearing. And I'm not going to take away their right to wear it, but, yeah, but in my you, opinion, like, they have been abused for so long by their community that <laughs> mm, now they you, don't... You'd think the association's just too strong with... Uh... But I think even if they like it, it's because they have been abused and conditioned into liking it, and it's still mm-hmm. a horrible anti-woman thing to have this. Maybe. I don't like, know. There's, there's no way I will ever look at someone wearing a hijab and not feel either bad for them or angry at who's forcing them to do that. I see people in hijabs all the time because I happen to live right next to a mosque, and I, I, I don't feel like those things. If anything, the, the one major perk of the garment, I guess there's a couple. One is that they look remarkably breathable, so in the heat, mm-hmm. like, you know, depending on what it's made of originally looks, you were covering yourself because you lived in a desert and you don't want to get sunburned yeah right but i mean that doesn't explain why only women had to hide their face but um i think men also had to like there was the the wasn't there the male version you have to have a beard and you have to wear a turban or something 
I'd hate to, no, I can't grow a beard. But um, <laughs> the the other thing is that, like, they can be bright and colorful. It's not just the black ones that, you mm-hmm. know, um, you're supposed to blend in. I think in. the, the extreme the fundamentalists are the black ones, the burka, where it's black and there's only a slit for your eyes. Yeah. yeah. That's the hijab the, is just where you've got a headscarf. Oh, okay. I used the wrong term then. Yeah. The, the cool thing about the hijab and or the, the burka. The hijab is but, not nearly as bad then. Because uh, you can still see, see the people's face. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's just a headscarf. I'm sorry. I'm, You're just covering your hair. I was talking about the burqa then. I see women driving all the time with hijabs on and they've got their phone tucked into the the head wrap. <laughs> okay. And so they can kind of like have a wireless headset, yeah. but they just they've just shoved their phone in there. I think that's brilliant. Okay. Yeah. yeah, just just the headscarf is like whatever. People have been covering their hair forever. Yeah. It's it's one of those things I think I I do see it. It it's complicated. I'm not a, a scholar on this on the issue, so I can't weigh in too heavily, but it's it's one of those things where I can see what you're saying. It's like yeah, I, I've loved to learn my chains, or excuse me, I've learned to love my chains, right? right. And it's like they'll defend it, but they, it, it comes from you know centuries or decades of of being told this is what you're supposed to do, and mm-hmm. then then of course when you move somewhere where you don't necessarily have mm-hmm. to, you're like, oh, I'm going to hold on to that yeah. because it lets me identify. I think you can with... reclaim stuff too. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of very liberal Muslim women have like kind of reclaimed the hijab as like I choose to wear this, and it means what I want it to mean. I grew up wearing it it feels comfortable and i like it so i'm gonna re reclaim what this means yeah i think i've also just seen some dishonesty from people who are Mm. who uh who say that they're of the first group but are actually of the second (laughs) or 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 they say or they insist that other people are of the second okay and they say oh no it's a choice in in many parts of the middle east and uh and in in places where it's explicitly not right okay and it's like okay well if you go there and ask them they will they will say no i'm supposed to wear this they won't say oh i love it or they might say i love it but they'll they won't say it's my choice i can go to the store without it yeah um i could stop wearing it at any moment yeah (laughs) if i changed my mind and And everything would be normal and fine in general i think my thing is don't make people do stuff yeah let people do whatever they want and i just want to reiterate totally okay with the like head covering burka is the one that still shows face the uh, hijab, hijab is the one. Hijab still shows face. Totally okay with that one. And I must have been talk- using the wrong word, and I'm so sorry about that. It's only the something that makes you basically put a bag over your head that I find repellent. I think making people do anything is dumb. Yeah. I feel like if you want to wear a burqa, go nuts. There's been days where I wished I could have worn a burqa. I don't want to. I don't want <laughs> to look at anyone today. Like, uh, there's something I like about the anonymity of putting on a baseball cap and a hoodie, and like, it's like, uh, I don't know. I'm having a bad hair day, or like, I just don't want to interact with anyone right now. Incoming uh, timestamp. Speaking of which, hello. Oh my goodness. It's a pup. All right. All right. Shall we then? Let's shall. All righty. Uh, so I'm going to finish this up with, uh, talking about what white shift actually is with the term time book title takes its <laughs> name from. Damn it. Anyways. Good. Cause I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so white shift is, so right now, um, I'm sure you've heard the statistic already that the U S is on track for becoming a minority majority country or majority minority. I don't know which order they're in, but like we're based whatever the first one is being greater than the previous. Yeah, where okay. uh, the total of all the majorities, uh, uh, the total of all the minorities in the U.S. will be greater than fifty percent of the population, so that white people will no longer be a straight-up majority in the U.S. Ooh, spooky! I know, right? Um, what will we do? And the author <laughs> says that uh, he doesn't think this is actually a thing that is going to happen because the definition of white has been changing for a long time to include mm. more and more groups, and that he thinks this is continuing to happen right now and will continue to happen into the future, which is the term white shift. Um, he says that, hmm. yeah, that uh, 
the best indicator of assimilation is intermarriage rates. So he talks about intermarriage uh, quite a bit in this section. Uh, and he also actually pointed out that research shows that preventing presenting evidence of intermarriage and assimilation to conservative audiences significantly reduces their support for right-wing populism. So that's a cool huh. thing to know, at least. Yeah. Wait, could, can you say that again? Pre- uh, presenting evidence of intermarriage and assimilation significantly reduces a conservative audience's support for right-wing populism. Okay. So if you show a populist right-winger that, hey, look, the scary immigrants are actually marrying white people, they get less scared? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they're marrying it. They're becoming more like the rest of us culturally. Uh, so we're cool with them. So has has white-shifting ever been applied to, um, I was going to say non-whites, which is obviously the joke, but I don't, that wouldn't have come through, to non-fair-skinned people? I mean... That depends on how fair-skinned you consider some of these people being. Um, the Irish are often very fair-skinned, but also distinctively, you know, red-haired and freckles often. And I think uh, not that often. The what? I said I think not that often. I think slightly, more often than the rest of the Europeans, though, right? I think slightly higher incidence rate, but like more, like far less so than you would expect based on the popular like depictions of Irish people. Okay. I think most of them actually just have brown hair. But you show me a picture of their hand, it still looks like a white... I'm just looking at mine. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I don't mean, think you could visually pick out an, an Irish-American person just by their any of their features from any other European-descended American. I think... I disagree. I think that if you were to have grown up, like, in England, um, you could pick out people who were Irish, and the reason you can't pick out Irish-American people are because, as he says, the intermarriage rates are so high mm-hmm. that a lot of most people are of mixed ancestry now. Huh. Um, he did point out one statistic that, uh, again, going to the Italian-Americans, dang it, where was that? I um, don't know. I still think that you could not visually like have picked out an English person from an Irish person, even when they were both very ethnically. like. I really disagree. I think that is, that is kind of like saying that um, you couldn't pick out like um, the difference between like a Korean and a Chinese person. You can't. Which, <laughs> which I mean, might be hard for people who don't come from that area. But I think for there anyone are certain features up, that tend could. more towards extremes on like those two sides. But if you took any random like version, any random Chinese person and any random Japanese person, you, you couldn't definitively just by their physiology. Probably not definitively, no. But you could have some idea most of the time. And yeah, then, would you would you bet on it and win eight times out of ten? Right. And no, then, I don't you know, think you could. If you <laughs> actually met them and talk to them, that would much further strengthen your your idea of who's where um the statistic about italian americans is that in 1989 uh less than five percent of those over the age of 65 had uh mixed ancestry but more than 80 percent of those under 10 years old had mixed ancestry and that uh many of them now simply call themselves white or american instead of italian american um and he's he's saying that that's basically going to happen more and more and he gives examples of it happening uh, right now, um, hold on, let me pull here, saying it may be that Hispanics are the next white-shifting group. Um, he puts the, uh, also mentions that uh, the longer a stable minority population is in an area, the uh, weaker the support of the populist right is, uh, because as more time passes, more of the minority are viewed as established by you know the white people around there. Um, but, uh, going back to this, he mentions that if you met someone whose last name was Cruz and they look kind of Hispanic, 
uh, then you think probably Hispanic person, but then you find out that their first name is Ted, that he <laughs> identifies as an unhyphenated American, that he's half Anglo, that he's married to a white woman, and he's a Republican. At that point, you kind of think of him as a white guy. And I've certainly never thought of Ted Cruz as um, Hispanic. I, I was surprised to hear he's, he's half Hispanic, actually. I thought that maybe it was like some distant ancestry or I something. Know, I definitely thought of him as Hispanic. Did you? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think it was. I think it was the whole being a leader in the Republican Party that really cemented his whiteness for me. Mm. So I had no idea. Same. I guess I knew from the name, but that could be you know two generations out or something, right? So yeah. He also uh, looks Hispanic. <laughs> I never thought so. Like it wasn't until he grew the beard and I kind of like squinted, then I thought he looked Hispanic. I can't conjure Ted Cruz's face to my mind, which is probably a good thing okay i can because of all the zodiac killer memes (laughs) (laughs) i've seen his face on tumblr a lot he says that half of hispanics currently identify as white and 30 percent of third generation uh, mexican descendants in the u.s are of mixed ancestry now uh he points this out this this part really resonated with me and i'll tell you for a second in a second why Hmm. um he says that often people as they move on later in the generations drop out of this Hispanic category entirely, which makes them seem less mobile on censuses than they actually are. Uh, because the more, the more upwardly mobile ones uh, are more likely to intermarry and to uh, take on white names and to just drop the Hispanic part uh, entirely. Um, mm-hmm. The reason I bring this up is because I was married to someone who was the daughter of a Mexican immigrant uh, back in my early 20s. It was that terrible marriage that I usually don't talk about. She was a wonderful person. It was just a terrible match. Mm. We did not match well together. But um, I I could tell from the day uh, we talked about the marriage thing that one of the things she was most excited about was taking on uh, my white last name. Um, that was like <laughs> a big status symbol for her. She kept it after we separated, despite the fact that she was not a fan of me anymore. <laughs> um, her brother uh, made really good. At first, they lived in the ghetto and he was part of a gang, but they moved like her dad started his own business, was successful. They moved out to the suburbs. Uh, her her brother went to an accounting school. When I saw him, like I would have to squint to know that he was to know that he was Hispanic, even though he was three quarters Hispanic. But he looked and talked very much like any other white guy you would meet. He married a white woman. He basically... Did he have like an accent before? He had less of one now? Uh, I didn't meet him before, but he didn't have any accent at all when I met him. Okay. I mean, he was... his mannerisms were all like what you would describe as white. Yes. And he picked up white culture. Like, this is where like when people say, I don't see white culture, I don't know what white culture is. The reason you don't see it is because you're like immersed in it. Like, Mm. I met this guy. I went to... I spent a lot of time at my in-laws house and they still had like some Hispanic trappings in the house. Like you could, you could tell that this was probably a family who someone came from Mexico. But uh, when I went to his apartment where he moved in with his wife, like it was, it was white. It was like, Uh this is suburban white bread. Exactly what you would expect to see in, in any, any white persons on, on the, on the set of friends, you know? And, I can um, definitely see the difference between like capital white culture, but then like I also see some differences between like Italian American white culture and whatever. Yeah. So I mean, this this is a thing that I personally saw happening in my life, which is why this resonated with me when I read this chapter. 
Um, he says, the, the author says, Kaufman, if the pattern holds as before, because he also points out that this is what happened to Irish, Catholics, Jews, and Italians, if the pattern holds, the future won't be majority-minority, it will be a white majority where Spanish last names are common. They're just, Spanish <laughs> last names are as common in the white populace as Irish last names or Italian last names are. Uh, there was an interesting uh, example given here about white shift. This this happened not too long ago. You guys probably heard about it in the news. ICE arrested 200 illegal Hispanic workers at a meatpacking plant in uh, Grand Island, Nebraska. I did not hear about that. Okay. It was, I mean, it was a big raid and a big thing. But after that, management sought out new workers because they need workers in their packing plant. And Americans aren't going to do it for the shitty ass wages that they're willing to pay. So uh, they got Somali refugees to come in uh, and take these jobs. And since these are refugees from Somalia, they're all legal U.S. residents. They were granted asylum here. Um, they, since there were 200 of them all coming as a block, they're like, look, can, can you make our shifts to accommodate our Muslim prayer breaks? This is kind of a big deal for us. And uh, management was like, yeah, all right. And they also uh, shifted the work a little bit earlier in the day so that they could get to dinner uh, before sundown, which is also apparently an important thing to them. And also really hard to do this time of year. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> You guys um, pull with working six-hour days? <laughs> yeah. But this really enraged a lot of people uh, because there's, like, all these people walking around in traditional Muslim garb now, and the the town's major industry is changing its practices to cater to them. Uh, over 1,000 Hispanic workers protested, and town residents were uneasy when polled. Uh, the mayor admitted that hijabs made people uneasy. And the really striking part was that one of the uh, factory workers, uh, he was, this was a legal one, uh, Raul Garcia, 70-something years old, had been working there most of his life. He said, the Somalis are arrogant. They act like the U.S. owes them. Um, and, like, the town kind of united around that sort of sentiment that these people mm. are trying to push their ways on us everything was fine why do we gotta cater to their whims and since the hispanic people were on the white side of that they were sort of like starting to be included in the in the white populace's identity in the town that surprises me only because you would think as a capitalist you'd be like hey it's your business do whatever the hell you want <laughs> like that that nothing sounds more capitalistic to me than you know it, it was maybe, a maybe, town. It's, maybe it's maybe it's anti-capitalist to accommodate your workers but um <laughs> oh, if you're if your workers it's not supposed to be no i, I think know but but as a joke i mean it's like i i would think that oh that makes perfect sense well hey, i mean the business did it the business didn't have a problem with it that's my point it was the people in the town and my, 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 my point is that it's surprising that the people in the town disagreed with the business doing what it decided to do yeah um only just, because that that sounds like the most American thing that you can do, right? I mean, that depends on which, if you're a cosmopolitan American or if you're a, a traditionalist American. I guess. I feel like telling a business what to do is the most anti-American thing I could think of, but um, or the most anti-patriotic uh, thing I could think of, rather. Yeah. Uh, he has a, a related example, which is not quite white shift. Um, it's like more, more Hawaiian shift. Uh, in Hawaii, the native population was decimated when America went in there, you know, conquered them, made Hawaii one of our territories, uh, decimated to under 50,000 people in 1900. Uh, that's up to 300,000 Hawaiians today, and it may be 700,000 by the year 2060. This is despite the fact that there's actually only 7,000 pure native Hawaiians. Uh, those 300,000 people today identify as native Hawaiians because of intermarriage, uh, because they're descendants and of, of some of those people. So... 
Yeah, the the state could again become majority Native Hawaiian by the end of the century hmm. due to intermarriage, even though there's only about 7,000 actual Natives. I need to double check how big Hawaii is, but fitting 700,000 people there sounds like a sounds like a it's it's a drag no it's a it's pretty large yeah it it is not like when you think of an island like gilligan's island no it is more of an island like when you think of tokyo or japan several islands too and it is yeah it's like there's four or five large ones i've only ever seen it on globes where they have to like (laughs) they have to zoom in and show it it's like almost as big as new jersey and it's near the equator so it isn't like super blown up like iceland is yeah anyways um on the topic of white shift keanu reeves uh, I didn't know he was Asian until he appeared in. Uh, Wait, he's Asian. Uh-huh. He's half Asian at least until he until he was in uh, Polynesian. Um, I think. What, Polynesian? Was the, what was that movie with Polynesian uh, or Maori? With Ali Wong and one. Randall Park. The oh. one I made you watch that clip of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what you'll was you'll that? always be my maybe. Yes. Okay. It's a rom com that overall has all the rom com shitty tropes, which actually made me understand why some people don't like superhero movies. Okay. If you don't like the recipe, then you just won't like it however it's delivered. Yeah. Um, the movie was meh, but he played the best character he's ever played. Uh, <laughs> he played <laughs> asshole Keanu Reeves. Yeah, it was perfect. Um, and he was only in it for like five minutes, but it was hilarious. And I've shown people just that clip of the I've shown at least three people just that clip of the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I learned that, yeah, he's he's half Asian, so... It, I'm not I'm sure. I'm not surprised, actually. Like, I, for some reason, I thought I knew that he was Eastern European, which also is a, I guess, community that looks kind of Asian because they do have Asian ancestry, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the the eyes in particular. It. I don't know when exactly I figured out that he wasn't fully white. It was sometime after the Matrix, but before a few years ago. But it, it, it's like he was on something on screen. And I like squinted a little. And I was like, "Hey, he looks like he might be part Asian," you know. And then I went and looked it up. I was like, oh, what do you know? But I don't know how many people know that. I don't... He's basically treated as white, and most people think of him as white, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. At least that's been my Does experience. Does he self-identify as white? I don't know. I mean, Couldn't I, tell you. Hmm. Doesn't he, like, pass as white, though? Basically, yeah. He said in quotes. Yeah. So, like, that's... That's, that's an example of, of white shift. Yeah. That's what I'm I curious mean, he's about, though. as with, white as Barack Obama, genetically. Yeah. That's, that's my thing with, like... The Hoffman's thesis, though, on white shift is that I don't know if he's he didn't point to any examples historically where they don't like uh, this sounds racist, but pass as white, right? Well, like from across the street, you can't tell that Keanu Reeves isn't white. A pure-blooded Italian would not pass as white for anyone who was familiar with the the ethnicities. Mm-hmm. I'm prob- it really depends on the Italian. And it well, again, on the, it, there, and it depends on the decade. But there's, now, there's always fringe cases, sure. yeah. But um, like back in the day, if you were to go to like Italy, Italy, where people have been only living there and marrying other Italians for generations, most people you'd be like, okay, this is a distinct. They look, they look. There's a look you can you can kind of tell. And again, there's edge cases like there are with everything. We're like, I'm not quite so sure. Need to talk to someone, you know, maybe get their back history, maybe find out what their name is. But in general, yeah, you could. Much hmm. like I think you, in general, people have the same same way they can tell apart Koreans from Chinese from Japanese, especially if they come from that area and are used to looking for these things, are familiar with uh, the markers. Yeah, I don't know if I could tell a, a Greek apart from an Italian, but I know that they could tell them apart. For, you know, an Italian could say that person's Greek, right? right. I think it's just a fact of human brain 
what do you, I guess facial recognition that I'm not sure if it's what you're exposed to or if it's actually genetic, but people are better identifying people of their own race than they are people of other races. Hmm. Um, okay. It could be as babies, if all you saw was white people, then you're better at telling white people apart. But I remember learning at some point hmm. in primary school that um, to, and like not as a joke, family guy did a joke about it, that all white people look the same, just like all ja- all, all Chinese people look the same to white people, right? right. Yeah. Um, and it, that's simplifying, but it's it's like, uh apparently yeah, that, that makes that makes sense i think like it evolutionarily does. yeah yeah and i'm not, again i'm not sure if it's evolutionarily over the point of your programmed from birth uh to recognize people of your own race better or if you're programmed from after birth from just mm. when you're forming what faces look like yeah in your, in it your really developing depends brain. on how um extensive of a process that is like i think yeah your, your um brain continues developing like long after you're born obviously i think you develop your well, actually, I'm not sure. I think that, come to think, I think facial recognition is one of those things that is actually very hardwired into young infants. Like young a, infants, a, but not the, pre... Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But I mean, yeah, like it develops really early, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. So, I mean, I'll take Keanu as my example. I would, Ted Cruz literally did not know he had any significant amount of Hispanic blood until I read this book. He, he looks white to me. When Jess said... Um, Zodiac Killer, I knew exactly who you were talking about. So <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't think he was Hispanic at all. And then I looked at pictures of him with his beard, which looks great on him, by the way, because mm. he's very baby-faced. Um, nothing against people's faces, but something against Ted Cruz that snuck in there. Um, I like baby faces. Not on Ted Cruz. Well, in any case, well. <laughs> there's, there's also a great, um, not limp sync battle, uh, there's a YouTube video, which I'll find to put in the show notes, of um, Ted Cruz. It's It's like they do like mad libs of like segments of like the walking dead or of TV shows or whatever, or football games. And there's a great like campaign commercial by Ted Cruz where people are just mad libbing over or like dubbing over the audio. And it's hilarious. So people will see that if they're curious, if you want a good laugh, we should include a funny thing in every show note. Absolutely. All right. I'll, I'll take up the responsibility on that one. Okay. All right. I'm going to close out with the last of what he was saying here. Yes. And then, yeah. All right. He says, white shift is a model in which these white majorities evolve gradually into mixed race majorities that take on white myths and symbols. We need a new cultural contract in which everyone gets to have a secure, culturally, culturally rich ethnic identity, as well as a culturally neutral and future-oriented national identity. Western society will grow more diverse before white shift sets in. Repressing white identity as racist and demonizing the white past adds insult to the injury of this group's demographic decline. And uh, accepting this will enable conservative whites to find a sense of ethnic continuity in the coming mixed race population. Hmm. This sounds overly optimistic to me somehow. I like the optimism. <laughs> I mean, or rather, I like the vision. I, if Whether it's overly optimistic or not, it, it sounds nice. Hmm. Uh, I mean, not that people will be like, oh, good, there's more whites, but like <laughs> that people will not keep freaking out. That'd be pretty cool. People I don't even just... know if I buy the premise that people are going to be, uh, whatever. That people are going to... That more people will be accepted under the term white. Ah, okay. I mean, the fact that it has historical precedence I get, yeah. suggests that it's possible. Are the Kardashians white? I have no idea. I don't think so. I don't know what they look like. Oh, you guys don't know what they look like? I, I know vaguely what they look like, and they look dark-skinned to me. They look kind of dark-skinned, yeah. But I, I... I think of them as basically white. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, from the very little I know... Aren't they like famous just for being famous, like those people? Like I think so. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's about the whitest thing I can think of. So in that sense, <laughs> they're white. But right. uh, I, I, 
I guess I'm I'm not the person to ask to draw lines about like which fits into which category. Like, yeah, you know, it, it that sounds like I'm patting myself on the back for being racially blind, but right, right. I'm also <laughs> the person who really often confuses people on TV as to whether or not they're Hispanic or Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, I just suck at rec- recognizing people's faces. And it's just a, it, if you watch a movie with me or a TV show and like someone changes an outfit between scenes, I'll lean over and ask, like, is that the same person from earlier? <laughs> um, like I'm, so I'm you probably might be a, more facially blind than average. I'm, I definitely am. Huh. Uh, given how I am given to understand other people operate and how well they recognize people. Um, I have some funny stories about that, but we're over time. So yeah, oh. seeing as I literally have to have you guys out the door in 17 minutes or less. Okay. Let's wrap up real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe let's like a patron and keep the uh, sequences for next time. Yeah, we'll save the sequences. Okay. Unless you unless you have time. Um, I don't know if we could confidently do that. I would like to spend at least 10 minutes on the sequences. Yeah. And yeah, I would feel I would be too rushed. Yeah, we'll, we'll pass them for next time. Considering I didn't read them, I'd be happy to <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> also push them ahead so I could sound like I know what I'm talking about. We are sorry about that, guys. But we will um, next time talk about the sequences. Um, Your strength is a rationalist and I defy the data. Perfect, exactly. All right, time to think of patron. Jess, it's your turn. It's been a while. Oh, hang on. Uh, oh, yeah, find it on the list. You're good. <laughs> I'm really glad that I get to uh, thank this patron because their name is Thunk in all caps. Hello, Thunk. I don't know if you are a patron or a sound. <laughs> <laughs> Why not <laughs> or, both? Or maybe the past tes- tense of think. <laughs> I like that. And thunk it's all in caps, so it could be like, you know, five different letters and acronym. Oh, it could be an acronym. Yeah. I hope it's an acronym. I love acronyms. Well, we are sponsored by an acronym or the past tense of thinking or just someone named Thunk. Thank you, Thunk. Fun, <laughs> yes, thank you. And fun fact about Thunk, that was the one in that, uh, that small study in the mid-century mm-hmm. where people, um, this this was one of my favorite psycholog- psychological experiments that I read a book of some woman who was like trying to go through and replicate a bunch of these just on her own, like just to see if she could do the, you know anecdotally do the same thing what was she trying to replicate so in this case there are people who um were sent to uh various psychological hospitals okay and they had said hey go in there and tell the nurse tell the 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 nurses the doctors the everybody that you talk to that you're hearing the word thunk in your head (laughs) and then um say no other symptoms and they did that and i think i think all of them, except for, got a diagnosis of like schizophrenia, except for one person who got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Wow! <laughs> and this was this was the one um, that sparked the uh, like there was a there was a backlash from other hospitals saying we would never fall for that. And it's like, all right, cool. I'll send some people your way and see if see if I can trick you. <laughs> and the the researcher never did. But those hospitals kicked rejected people at the door. Oh, no. <laughs> or, or I guess <laughs> and so they they never actually sent Confederates, but they uh, some people I guess actually seeking help were rejected. <laughs> so it's like, hey, we caught your Confederates. It's like I didn't send any. <laughs> oh no. Well, I hope those people like you know that that was better for them. Uh, if their only symptom was hearing the word thunk, they probably didn't need to be institutionalized. I think maybe well, they, 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 were, they were in there as oh. they were in there as Confederates, as people uh, playing. A, the, right. They were real people with a real problem. No, the people hearing thunk didn't have a real problem. They no, 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 but whatever problem. these the people, people that were, were being turned away. Oh yeah, I'm assuming that they had as low level a problem as I'm hearing the word thunk. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might not have though. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's what makes this worrying. I'm mm. sure data wasn't gathered on the people who didn't weren't admitted. So, <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Thunk. Yes, thank you. That's awesome. Thank you, Stephen and Ash, for giving me a name I could pronounce. Huzzah! Oh yeah, it happens to be like every third name is, is a tough <laughs> one. Yeah.
Everyone I've gotten has been one that I'm not sure of the pronunciation, and then I'm like, thank you. Oh, God. <laughs> totally not planned. Thunk, please write in and say we, mis- we mispronounced your name. <laughs> it's Thunk. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all, and we will... Oh, oh, we should talk about this right now on the episode. Yes, last, last thing. We're the, the live show. Yes, our um, next episode is going to be the live show. Yes, which we will post between now. We'll post like a special five-minute segment that'll come out on the regular podcast feed um, about the actual date. Mm. It'll probably be the weekend of the, what, 17th and 18th? Let me double-check uh, the calendar. 14th, 15th? Yes, if yes. you're looking at actual weekends. It's going to be the weekend of the 14th, 15th. I should put it in my calendar, too. Um, we will settle on a time and date in the next few days, which will come up on the feed. And the um, the podcast that you hear will just be, you know, the the recording of our live live discussion. But we are going to have some way for people to interact, call in either through Skype or Discord or something, and just do a live show with whoever wants to listen in. We'll probably be on camera, too, so maybe we'll have to put it on fa- on YouTube. Oh, man. I'm going to have to put on my makeup. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got to put my face on. Can I do on. your makeup? <laughs> but then, yeah. So then Wednesday the 18th. Yeah, probably. I think you'd wait, do it well. Wednesday the 18th Yay. is when that one's supposed to come out? Uh, Wednesday the 18th is when that one's supposed to come out, yes. Okay, yeah. So that will just be the audio, which will be an extra long episode and probably less clean than, than the usual episodes. It'll so. just be us fucking around. And maybe even having a drink who knows and, and having probably oh static <laughs> you know input from from people with voice on whatever recorded thing that we're recording on our end because we're not gonna have everybody who calls in record their own stuff and send it so right yeah, the audio quality will be lower date and time tbd excellent cool all right bye everybody cheers bye-bye Sounds like your tea is done. Oh. (laughs) We'll leave it in. This is great audio.